Welcome back, everyone. It's the CFB Winning Edge, the podcast edition. I'm your host, Scott Bogman. Follow me on the Twitter at Bogman Sports. I'm joined, as always, by the owner and proprietor of CFB Winning Edge, Nicholas Ian Allen. Follow him on Twitter at CFB Winning Edge and Xavier Trish at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E. And here we are, boys. The final episode of the team previews. Ten to one we go. Thank God we are finally here. It's over. We are done. We have been laboring on this project of ours for the last couple months. It is, of course, a labor of love, but these shows are long, and we are uh, glad that we are getting into real action and uh, just in time for the real week one. I mean, we had the, you know, out-of-town tour or the soft opening or whatever it was on Saturday. Uh, you know, we have uh, teams being forced to play games because of budgetary reasons at Florida A&M. Uh, but that's our first taste. And now uh, we get the real week one opening up. But before we get to the real week one, uh, let's talk about teams 10 through one. We start at 10, Nick, with Miami. The Hurricanes got off to a rough start, losing to Alabama 44 to 13 and falling to two and four in mid-October. But QB Tyler Van Dyke led Miami to five wins in its final six games over NC State and ACC champ Pitt. DK has got their win total at eight and a half. We had them at eight and four. So a word you're going to hear a lot today under the eight and a half. Uh, for Miami, Mario Cristobal is back in Miami it's, uh, as the new head coach, and he brings optimism about improved offensive line play, recruiting, and investments in the program. Will it pay off immediately for the Canes in 2022? Nick, what do you think? Well, uh, you know, as our rankings would indicate, we think that a lot of these teams uh, and and a pretty interesting group, Miami being uh, certainly one of them, uh, pretty interesting group in that a lot of these teams, some folks might think are overrated in our numbers. I mean, Miami is a top 10 team, uh, is a bit of a stretch. Miami is one of those teams that it seems like comes up once a show, at least of ours, where we talk about, oh, yeah, you know, they're so talented, but they've been disappointing in the past. Um, our numbers have consistently been high on Miami, especially compared to uh, how they finished the last couple of years. And, and this Miami team, uh, last year's edition at least, did finish strong, as you mentioned. Nevertheless, you know the final record seven and five, not uh, not you know anything to get too excited about. And I do think that we will see some improvements uh, in some areas. I mean. Mario Cristobal is an offensive line guy, has done a good job uh, as a recruiter, um, and that seems to already be paying off. Uh, we've talked before about how the offensive line is, you know, has been a little bit of an Achilles heel for Miami. And if uh, this new coaching staff is able to get that unit playing at a, you know, higher level immediately and, and you know, doesn't... Uh, won't take much, let's say, to, to get this unit to play at a higher level. They finished 110th last year in our O-line performance ratings. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the potential is there for uh, this move to pay off very quickly. Um, uh, Tyler Van Dyke, you know, showed a lot in the second half of last season. He was a big reason why um, Miami finished – with five wins in its last 
six games and, and was able to knock off Pitt was able to beat NC state, as you mentioned, um, two of, you know, the defending ACC champion and then NC state, a team that, um, is, you know, getting a lot of buzz, uh, as we head into 2022 Miami, of course, is, uh, going to have to replace some production on the offensive side. They rank 50th in returning production. Um, on the defensive side, they actually rank in the top 10 and there's a, a kind of an interesting scenario where they were able to make some ground up on defense because they brought in a big uh, group of transfers, especially in the front seven, um, three full-time defensive linemen, all of whom, you know, may be able to play significant snaps early. Jacob Liechtenstein from USC, Akeem Mazador from West Virginia, uh, Darrell Jackson from Maryland, a couple of edge guys, Antonio Moultrie from UAB and Mitchell Agude from UCLA, linebacker Caleb Johnson and a, another West Virginia starter. Two guys who started at West Virginia last year uh, will be in the mix for Miami this season, cornerback Daryl Porter. So it's it's going to be uh, interesting to me because the defensive side of the ball was already, you know, pretty good, was, was uh, at least as far as, you know, the roster numbers specifically last year, team performance wise, they were a little iffy 73rd overall in the seventies, both against the pass and, and against the run, but got really, really good defensive line play ranked in the top 10 and D line performance. And they've had to rebuild that unit. It's going to be interesting to see how these transfers really impact um, this team up front. And, and I think there's a good chance that they're going to play pretty well. Um, it's just, you know, uh, with with this particular program, it's difficult to trust them, and and we'll say that a lot today, especially in the first you know four or five teams that we talk about. Um, it's difficult to trust Miami to win the games that it's supposed to win when it's got the most talented team on the field, because it does more often than not, and has for quite a while. Our talent edge numbers expect Miami to be. Uh, the more talented team in 10 games, the only two in which it's not, road games at both Texas A&M and Clemson. Um, the stats-only model, which actually takes into account some of the coaching changes. So Mario Cristobal, as the new head coach, it takes into account his track record at uh, Oregon. It also takes into account the offensive coordinator, Josh Gaddis, his track record at Michigan, which, of course, you know he was calling plays for uh, a playoff team the last time we saw him. And so, you know, those those uh, past results do factor in um, not only in our stats only model, but in our our overall uh, power rankings and and the higher of Mario Cristobal, the fact that he um, has a better track record, his uh, weighted team performance results as a head coach are better than that of Manny Diaz, the man he's replacing. That's part of why Miami gets a little bit of a boost here. So um, I kind of have to, to, you know, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it sort of thing uh, with Miami on, on whether or not they are actually going to be in the mix in the ACC, whether they have a shot at nine or 10 wins. Um, but there are some outside factors, including a talented roster that is, uh, you know, just, just <laughs> as usual, um, giving them a, a chance to say that they are the 
better team, you know, the, the more talented team on the field far more often than not. You did mention we are on the under, even though this is a top 10 team, even though a lot of the teams we're talking about today um, obviously are in our power rankings in the, the area where you expect they're going to be competing for not only conference championships, but playoff spots. Uh, this is a, a team like many we've talked about in you know our top 25, our top 40, where a lot of games on the schedule could go either way. Miami doesn't have quite as many you know, 50, 50 toss-ups or 60, 40 uh, type games, but there are a handful where they are favored by right around a touchdown, favored right around a touchdown at home against North Carolina at Virginia tech uh, at Virginia at home against Florida state and at home against Pitt. The location of those games set up pretty well for Miami. So if you're thinking best case scenario, the fact that, they get North Carolina at home, Pitt at home, um, Florida State at home, and you know Virginia Tech and Virginia are, are also teams in transition that don't have quite the you know baseline level of talent that Miami has. Those those set up you know pretty well, I think, for them to be in a position to win uh, the majority of those games. Not saying they're going to get through undefeated, but you know feel pretty good about how the schedule sets up. We'll learn about Miami relatively quickly mid-september that trip to texas a&m um and then you know i I think it's i think it's pretty realistic that miami has one maybe two losses by time they go to clemson in late november so um our overall projections and and it's right on the 8.5 by the way uh our projected win total is actually 8.49 so though we are technically under um, I mean, if if one of these projections was uh, a tenth of a point better for Miami, we would be on the over. So um, it feels a little, uh, you know, it feels a little odd to say like, oh, we're you know, we're definitely on the under. Technically, we are, but we we see Miami almost exactly how you know the odds makers do. So um, I I do believe that. This is a team capable of winning 10 or more games, but the fact that it is a new coaching staff and there is always sort of a little bit of a um, potential for some bumpiness early on, uh, it would not surprise me if Miami continues to lose, you know, one or two games that they probably shouldn't, finishes in the eight and four range uh, and comes up short of this number. However, I do think that the hire of Cristobal, the investments, as you mentioned, that they're making in the program, uh, which is kind of new for Miami, a little bit of a change compared to the last couple of decades, at least. Um, I think that this is a team that that will be better off, that that is a team on the rise. Um, it's just this year might be just a little bit too soon. Eight or nine wins seems about right. But, you know, if if they do get up to speed quickly, uh, the talent is there to, you know, get nine or ten wins and, and certainly be a factor, maybe even compete uh, for a spot in the ACC championship game. Xavier, what are your thoughts for the Hurricanes in 2022? Uh, we saw Tyler Van Dyke, like we said at the, the top here, really uh, light a fire under this team and put himself right. on the NFL radar as well. Uh, so that was nice for them. But new coaching staff, uh, it's a lot of pressure in Miami because this program needs to get back on top, like Nick said. We're going to talk about a lot of those types of programs today that always have the talent, 
which is why they're ranked so high here. They always have the talent on the roster, but it just hasn't been put together by the coaching and the staff recently. So what do you think about the Canes for 2022? Yeah, I mean, this team has the talent to compete for the ACC title, in my opinion, um, especially because I think that more recently that one of their biggest issues has been their quarterback position. I, I think they've had a, a rather, you know, a revolving door there for a couple of years now. Um, I think since, uh, oh man, his name escapes me. I'll figure it out in a second. Um, they haven't had a consistent presence there in, in, in a minute. And, and I think that's going to be a huge reason as to why Brad Kaya. There we go. Uh, they haven't had a consistent presence at quarterback at Miami. And I think that when, when you look at what Tyler Van Dyke was able to do down the stretch last year, is he wasn't just good, he was great. I mean, there were very few games uh, that I turned on last year, you know, towards the end of their year, and he wasn't, you know, airing the ball out. You know, the kid finished with 25 touchdowns, six interceptions, 2,900 yards, really good numbers for his first year. You look at some of the games he had, you know, in the month of November last year, three touchdowns, no interceptions. Uh, four touchdowns, two interceptions, three touchdowns, no interceptions, three touchdowns, no interceptions. And that, that kind of run uh, in that month alone is, is just, you know, ridiculous, right? And he went three and one in that time frame. I think that when you when you look at where they've also been really hampered over the last couple of years, it's been their offensive line. They have not been able to keep anybody upright. Uh, they just really haven't been able to. And I think you're starting to see maybe a switch and, and a shift there. Uh, my only concern is, you know, they're they're a little young in some positions. Left guard are going to probably be starting a rusher freshman there. Uh, other than that, I, I think they'll be fine. Uh, and I'm looking. That's really where I'm looking for uh, the most progression because if they can keep Van Dyke upright. He'll be perfectly fine. He's going to get the ball out. I love Jalen Knighton. Uh, I think he's a sneaky guy that's going to give you know give defenses uh, you know problems all year. Only being a sophomore as well, uh, you know. And let's be honest, with when you have a quarterback of Van Dyke's caliber, when you look at the receiving core, even though it's not senior laden, featuring two starting sophomores and a transfer in Frank Ladson, you're going to be perfectly fine because uh, he's going to get the ball to whoever he needs to get the ball to. And so, offensively, I think they'll be good. Uh, the other piece to this is the ACC is not, you know, talent rich or the, you know, in in the for the teams that they'll be playing against. You know, they they skip out on NC State, they skip out on Wake Forest, they only have to play Clemson, um, and Pitt. And when you look at it that way, there's not many teams in the conference that are even close talent wise to them uh, that they'll be playing this year. And then you can't even give the oh well, this team has a bunch of seniors. There, there's not some of those that exist in the conference as well. So. I think this is a team that should absolutely win nine games, like bare minimum for this to be successful first season for, for Mario Cristobal. It's got to be nine wins. You know, this is his alma mater, obviously. Um, and, and, you know, I think he's going to want to hit the ground running here. But and their schedule asks for it, you know, that they were able to beat Pitt last year. They were one of the few teams that did beat Pitt last year. Um, and if you really just say they're going to lose at A&M and at Clemson, that's a 10 win ball club. Right. Um, yes, I agree with Nick. They probably will drop one. That's a head scratcher um, and, and doesn't make any sense. At Virginia Tech, Blacksburg, October 15th. Um, I, 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 I wouldn't, you know, I, I'm not going to be too totally surprised if they do so. But if talent, you know, prevails in this situation, this is a 10 and 2 ball club at absolute worst, uh, 9 and 3. So I'm going to go with the over. I, I think the defense as well has come around. I think they had, and this is a perfect example. Their defense for the last like two years has been chock full of just old, older guys who hadn't, you know, progressed at all in their career. This defense coming in this year, I think, is much better. Um, it's younger in some respects, um, especially in the secondary. You're going to see a ton of sophomores. Um, you're going to see some juniors. Tyreek Stevenson should hit the ground running. 
uh, who's also a transfer. They're going to be, you know, playing some younger guys up front alongside the transfers, uh, like Jafari uh, Harvey, Leonard Taylor, both sophomores on the D line as well. So, I think they've gotten some of the older, uh, the older guys out, brought in some youth, and we're seeing a movement in, in, in uh, at Miami, not just on the field, but as you guys alluded to, off the field. That I think is going to see Miami start to find its footing again. And, and you know, this is a team that what hasn't been in, in, to a national championship since they were in the Big East. So, you know, for all my, for all my kids who have been born in the last 20 years, yes, Miami was in the Big East at one point. They weren't always an ACC team. Uh, but, yeah, so I, I think that this is a team that needs this. Um, I, I feel like they haven't been relevant since Mark Rick left, and that was really for just a year. So I think they're moving in the right direction. I love what uh, Crystal Ball's got going. He's one heck of a recruiter, and that's the number one thing that I'm seeing from them right now is Miami is getting back to recruiting uh, in the Florida area and they're beginning to dominate the Florida area. Um, you know, them in Florida are doing an excellent job. I really feel bad for Florida State, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, because, uh, you know, Crystal Ball is starting to hit and hit and, and hit big. You know, he's already got a top 10 class going into 2023. Um, the 2022 class was okay, but obviously he moved there rather late uh, with a, with the lame duck situation with Manny Diaz kind of holding, holding that uh, recruiting situation going on, but already bringing in, you know, the best offensive tackle in the state, um, the be, you know, the seventh nationally. And, and um, so I think he's going to be really good. I think he's going to be really good for the university, and I'm excited to see what Miami does going forward. All right, we go over to the number nine team we have here, USC. Time finally ran out for Clay Helton at USC early. In an eventual four and eight season, the Trojans lost six of their final seven games and only beat one team that finished with a winning record. DK still has their win total this year, though, for nine and a half. Uh, right now, um, we have them at eight and four, so officially under that nine and a half. Uh, Nick, no team has undergone a bigger transformation than USC. Uh, the Trojans brought in head coach Lincoln Riley and a host of transfers headlined by uh, quarterback Caleb Williams and wide receiver Jordan Addison. Is it fair to have such high expectations for a team that was four and eight last season? <sighs> I, I I worry a little bit about USC being in our top 10. I, you know, talk often have as we've uh, gone through, you know, the previous 120 plus teams about, you know, when the first time I ran the new projections, I get a, you know, initial sense of, oh, that team is too high or, or oh, that team is too low. And the first time... I looked at USC uh, was before some of the higher impact transfers um, came in or, or were official Addison. Uh, I know for sure hadn't been, um, you know, hadn't committed to USC yet, but they were in the mid to bottom twenties. Uh, and I thought to myself, you know, that, that seems too low. Um, we do, you know, obviously, uh, as you mentioned, the, the teams in this group in our power rankings are here in large part because of their talent numbers. Talent is the biggest piece of the puzzle when it comes to our uh, calculations for our overall power ratings. Um, and USC has a top five roster as it sits right now. Um, we, of course, you know, start with recruiting ratings but we do adjust based on experience and based on production. So there are uh, some teams that end up putting up some decent talent numbers that aren't, you know, top five recruiters. And USC really hasn't been uh, a top five recruiter 
the last few years. I mean, they they certainly have been um, in the past decade uh, recruiting at that level. But since 2019, you know, they they've uh, certainly fell out of that top five. This past year, they were able to to sneak into uh, you know a top ten type class after Riley was hired, but. They were 45th in our recruiting strength numbers in 2020. They were 21st in 2019. So the majority of this roster that, that you know, guys who signed with USC coming out of high school are not the, uh, you know, just a, a large number of five and four stars like they were two or three years ago when teams were still kind of underachieving a little bit, but still had those super high roster strength numbers. This team is built largely, especially on the offensive side of the ball, where they rank third in our offensive roster strength numbers um, through the transfer portal. And so that is something that's very different. We've always tracked transfers in, in the way that we uh, operate and, and you know, uh, put together our F FBS team profiles. Um, but we've seen the transfer numbers increase every year since we started this in, in 2018. And, you know, USC now has a former five-star quarterback in Caleb Williams, has uh, two really highly rated running backs, one a big-time recruit in Austin Jones who transferred from Stanford, the other, you know, lesser uh, known or, or, you know, wasn't as big of a uh, big-time recruit, Travis Dye, um, who's been just incredibly productive. So, you know, both of those guys are mid-90s players now in our uh, individual player ratings. Uh, Jones based largely on talent, but a little bit of production uh, prior to 2021 at Stanford. But Die, I mean, he's just, he's had huge years the last few years at Oregon. Jordan Addison, you know, similarly was a, a four-star level guy coming out of high school, but he's the Blitnikoff Award winner, which is given to the best receiver in college football. So when you add, uh, you know, Caleb Williams, who, uh, we saw glimpses of why he was, you know, the number one quarterback, one of the very best, uh, highest rated quarterbacks coming out of high school last year, getting to see him, you know, as a sophomore. And even though it's in a different location, operating in the same offensive system, because he, he was able to follow his head coach, brought along one of his favorite receivers and Mario Williams, uh, mixed in. Uh, guys who were, you know, pretty good recruits who were already on the roster, and Gary Bryant Jr., Taj Washington, who himself was a transfer from Memphis but was at USC last year. And those talent numbers just sort of uh, start to increase more and more. And quarterback and wide receiver are, you know, the two biggest uh, or two, you know, most heav heavily weighted quarterback, of course, being the most um, in our in our calculations in our projections. And so uh, because of, you know, Riley's uh, continued, you know, continued adding really highly rated guys like Addison, but also was able to, to go in and, and add depth to some areas that really needed it. Uh, like the defensive line, like linebacker uh, probably, you know, at least one corner is going to be um, a transfer, maybe two. So, those those uh, areas on the roster that were lacking in talent, um, Riley and this new coaching staffs come in and and at least on paper erased a lot of those concerns. The question then is, will it actually all come together? Because it's so many different 
people, you know, new players coming from all over. One coming from, you know, a couple from Oklahoma, one from Pitt, Colorado, uh, the FCS level, Alabama. How's it all going to mix together with a new coaching staff and with a roster, you know, 50% or, or so of which is back from last year's team? So that I think is my biggest concern now that USC has, um, based on the talent numbers, gone a good bit up in our power rankings from when we first calculated things. Now I'm worried a little bit that we're overrating them because obviously this was a four and eight team last year. The defense was really bad, ranked a hundredth, uh, 108th or worse in each of the five uh, important stats that we list on our team profiles, yards per play allowed points per drive, yards per pass attempt, success rate and EPA per play. All of them, you know, 108th or worse, including uh, one as low as 120 yards per pass attempt allowed. I mean, the secondary was just absolutely um, just, just, you know, gave up so many big plays and so many yards, so many points. The pass rush uh, really, really struggled at times, which is a big part of that as well. But this roster is much different. So it's, 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 I'm on the fence a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to, to wrap my head around a team like USC. And this also applies to, you know, Miami. It also applies to Texas and some others. Things have changed so much because of the transfer portal, because of the way that teams can rebuild rosters quickly that I, I kind of am glad we are higher on USC. I just worry a little bit, you know, about the chemistry piece of it. But for me, you know, talent wins out more often than not. Guys, that, you know, who are playing in college today, a lot of them, uh, change high schools a time or two are used to, you know, had teammates come in from a bunch of different high schools at different times. So I think that piece of it is probably um, maybe I'm worrying a little too much about that. They probably have plenty of time to get in, get on the same page, get to know each other and, and play well on, on the field. Um, but we'll see. I mean, USC is going to be a really interesting test case, not just for the way we calculate things, but for college football as a whole, you know, how it's going to work when a team like this brings in such high profile and such um, kind of unique players from a variety of different uh, areas and, and throws it all together with a new coaching staff. It's it, one of the USC is one of the most fascinating teams to me, uh, not just because of, you know, all the, the storylines that, that go along with it that people have been talking about for months uh, since Riley, you know, took that job. Um, but I'm going to be paying specifically very close attention because I'm hoping to to learn a thing or two. I mean, hopefully we kind of had a good idea going into this and, and our calculations and, and our ratings uh, end up, you know, correct more often than not. And USC plays, you know, around that top 10 level. Um, but, uh, you know, I expect to learn a thing or two that, that hopefully will continue to make some improvements in the future and, and, you know, USC, I think, will be a, a piece of that puzzle as well. Xavier, what are your thoughts on USC this year? Because, uh, like Nick said, there is a lot of talent, and a lot of the time, talent wins out. But this team, like Nick said, Texas, uh, some other teams on this list, they get the talent. 
and they haven't won in recent years. Four and eight ain't going to cut it at USC. That is why uh, Lincoln Riley is there now and Clay Helton is gone. So um, they bring in a massive amount of talent, upgraded an already solid roster for the Pac-12, and it looks like, uh, you know, they could they could make some noise. Are they ready to do it this year? What do you think? <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I don't think anybody in the country is worried about what USC is going to do offensively. Nobody. I think everybody's looking to see if Lincoln Riley can field a defense. You know, I, that was his problem at Oklahoma. His, his offense was as explosive as they come. His defense were a bunch of turnstiles. And I think that regardless of how much talent he's brought in on the offensive side, for a lot of people, and this is not just me, but talking for what I've seen on social media and I just think, you know, as a consensus, wants to see what he does defensively. You know, I, I think ultimately having Caleb Williams, Travis Dye, Austin Jones, Bobby Haskins being brought in, Brendan Rice, Mario Williams, Jordan Addison, and the list goes on, doesn't necessarily matter for a lot of people because USC can be as explosive as they want to offensively. It hasn't helped them win the Pac-12 before. It didn't help Lincoln Riley win the Big 12 last year. And, and I think that if, you know, when you, when you look at their schedule and, and you look at what's in front of them, the only way that this is a successful year is if, unfortunately for them, they win the Pac-12. Those are just the expectations that I think that this team carries with them. I think it would be very – even if they do lose a game, let's say they lose at Utah in, you know, in week six, I believe that is, uh, week seven, excuse me, I think that – an 11-1 finish with a Pac-12 championship would be perfectly fine. But anything less of a Pac-12 championship, and I think this team is going to be thought of as a, a failed experiment. Uh, you know, And yet I'll be a little bit harsh, I, I think, uh, for large reasons. Obviously, continuity being first and foremost as a brand-new receiving core, brand-new quarterback, brand-new running back. There's going to be some growing pains in that. But ultimately, when you have this much talent, people just feel like it should work. And yes, to an extent, that's completely, you know, that's just dumb. Uh, but at the same time, when you look at a, a, um, a university like USC, they don't have much time to kind of just be middling around and trying to figure it out. That's why they brought in Lincoln Riley. That's why they stopped. They went for the juggernaut, right? That's why they allowed him to go out and get any transfer that he wanted to. You know, Jordan Addison was one of the hottest commodities on, you know, of the entire transfer cycle. And USC popped in. And was and for the most part had had that one all wrapped up outside of a couple of rumors here and there, but you know I think that you know Nick hit it right on the head. This is a this is a guinea pig. This is an opportunity for us to see if this works. If you can put together these many transfers from this many schools, uh, almost like a super team variety, you know, from NBA fans, and will it work? Because you know football is a different monster. You know, it's unlike basketball, putting a couple of great guys on the same team doesn't necessarily, you know, turn into wins and definitely doesn't turn into championships. So if you put, you know, in, in in their case, you put together, you know, I think one of, if not the leading rusher in the Pac-12, uh, you know, Caleb Williams, who took over the Big 12 by storm, Jordan Addison, who won the bullet in the cough last year on that offense, does it immediately turn into, you know, the best offense in college football or top five offense in college football? And that's, a, yet, uh, that's yet to be seen. When you look at their schedule, though, I, I think – we're not going to learn anything about this team until they play Utah. That's no offense to anybody on that schedule, but it's also complete offense to everybody on that schedule because <laughs> defensively they're not seeing anybody who I would even consider a top 50, top 40 defense up until that point. And maybe Nick can tell me the numbers on this, but Rice, Stanford, Fresno State, Oregon State, maybe 
Arizona State, Washington State. I don't think any of them are scratching the top 40 defensively. And then obviously you play Utah. Maybe Arizona State, but probably not. Yeah, so so this offense is probably going to put up some astronomical numbers, and you know, the, the, you know, UFC being back will be the title. Uh, if they lose, drop any of those games, obviously all hell will break loose. But you know, I, I think they'll coast rather easily in those games. Then that Utah game, you know, October fifteenth, going to Salt Lake City, having to play the reigning Pac-12 champion, it's going to be a tough matchup. And that's where I'll learn everything I need to know about USC, where Lincoln Riley is right now. Uh, and a lot of the players on this team, because, you know, for all the good things Caleb Williams did last year, he was also benched at one point for Spencer Rattler. Yes, he got back into that ball game, but he was also benched in that game. He had some games last year where you where he, you know, looked amazing. And then all of a sudden he looked completely pedestrian. So can he be consistent? Um, and defensively, you know, they play Utah, whose offense I think will be pretty good this year. And they play Notre Dame. I think those are probably the only two teams offensively that wow me. I mean, obviously Fresno State will put together a great, great offense, but playing USC, I don't think that it's going to show me all too much. Um, once again, unless USC's defense just gives up way too many points. Uh, but this team should go 10-2, and 11-1, minimum, like minimum. Um, I'm willing to take the over here just because I believe that they will. The rest of their schedule, in my opinion, is rather soft. They don't pull Oregon from the opposite side. They don't pull Washington uh, from the opposite side. So I think though, I think they should coast, man. Like I, I hate to say it, but you know, I don't want to belittle the Pac-12 at all. But this team is extremely talented. And anything less than ten wins is, you know, is a failure in my opinion. All right, let's go over to my favorite team here, the one I'm the most excited to talk about. Number eight, Texas. Texas opened up the Steve Sarkeesian era on a four and one run, but suffered a six game Big 12 losing streak after finally getting back into the win column versus K State. The Longhorns finished five and seven last season. Eight and a half wins is the DK win total. Uh, we are at eight and four, so officially under the eight and a half. For Texas, Nick, uh, look, I'm just going to ask is the defense going to improve enough? to hold some of those teams to lower scores because I, the, the, here's the big thing for me is the offense scored last year, even though Casey Thompson wasn't perfect, even though, you know, Xavier worthy uh, was young and an up and comer, they scored points, but they couldn't stop anybody. Kansas scored, put up 50 points in Austin last year at the game I was at. So my big question with Texas is, can they stop anybody? Because it looks like offensively, they're going to be fine. Uh, I know there's been some rough QB play in uh, the practice and, you know, card Ewers went down to the wire here and Quinn Ewers was kind of given the job. I, you know, they named it him the starter, but I don't know if he's really fully earned it yet. So um, there's a little question there, but I don't really care who starts a QB. I just want the defense to be able to stop someone. So can that happen this year? What do we think? Uh, you know, it's a really good question. And it's similar to USC because uh, like Xavier said, there really aren't questions on offense. There's so much talent. And, you know, last year, especially at Texas, you know, they were pretty good. And, and uh, as you mentioned, Quinn Ewers coming in, one of the highest rated quarterback recruits of all time, Bijan Robinson, one of the best, maybe the best running back, uh, in college football, Xavier Worthy, freshman All-American, even though the offensive line, they've got some, uh, you know, uh, injuries and and maybe starting one, maybe two true freshmen on the offensive line. That's a, a little concerning. 
But defensively, yeah, they ranked 99th in defensive team performance last year. They were 105th against the run. Um, you know, we've been doing the show three, four years now, and and tackling at Texas has been a uh, pretty consistent talking point in season, you know, on, on your end. That's just a, uh, a concern. And last year, you know, again, a bit of an issue. Texas. I think Overshone gets one band on his body somewhere for every missed tackle. <laughs> I think that's what it is. Uh, one, one thing that would help is if they are able to stay a little healthier. Um, Overshone specifically. I mean, he, he was banged up a good bit last year. I know Luke Brockmeyer, who was a returning starter, fellow returning starter at linebacker, um, had a, a significant injury at the uh, end of the season. The secondary, it seems like for for uh, the last couple of years, uh, was just banged up week in and week out. Um, so that piece of it would help, certainly. Um, I do think, even though last year's results are, you know, his name is on them. Uh, I like Pete Kwiatkowski has a really strong track record as a defensive play caller. Um, my my gut tells me uh, that the second year in that system, you know, probably will will uh, show some improvement as well. But there's, you know, it, it's a question that it, it kind of. I don't often like to go with my gut, but but you just kind of have to look at that because otherwise there's not a whole lot of you know major. Um, uh, signs to indicate an obvious turnaround. I mean, Texas, most of its impact transfers seem to be on the offensive side of the ball, which, as you mentioned, was already probably going to be in pretty good shape. We do have Ryan Watts transfer from Ohio State, um, who did not start at Ohio State last year, but have him currently penciled in as a starter at safety. Um Demonte Tucker Dorsey was a uh, an All American at the FCS level at James Madison. He might, you know, work in his way into the the starting group at linebacker, but we don't currently have him penciled in, you know, penciled in there. Texas did lose three players who signed, uh, or I guess it's just two on the defensive side of the ball signed with with NFL teams, um, you know, after the NFL draft. Lost a starter in B.J. Foster, uh, who transferred down to the FCS level, and, and Sam Houston. So, you know, it's it's uh, other than just some some natural progression in the second year in the same system, um, and a couple of you know new faces transfers. Maybe there are some impact freshmen. They did recruit well on the defensive line. Maybe that'll help some with the pass rush. Um, maybe there will be, you know, a guy like, uh, their highest rated, two highest rated guys who are, you know, edge defenders, Jamon Tapp, Justice Finkley, you know, I'm not a recruiting guy, but perhaps, um, two guys who are 95 rated players coming out of high school, high, high four-star guys, uh, might be able to, you know, make an impact in that area. Um, and then, you know, they also recruited quite well in the secondary, multiple guys in that 95, 96 range, uh, Terrence Brooks, Brian Allen Jr. You hate to say that the, the true freshman, um, you know, you hate to rely on true freshmen, but we do sometimes see, uh, some guys step up and, and become impact players. And, and I'm not sure specifically 
if any of those names I mentioned will do that. Um, but I guess that's that's the other best bet. Uh, you know, if we're looking for a turnaround, is is some um, some guys just coming in and and being immediately the best player at that position, taking it over and and kind of helping to solidify it. But um, not sure that that's a great answer or or one that maybe Texas fans really want to hear because it's it's interesting. It's not. I'll as take evident. realistic <laughs> instead of being in the top twenty five. Every year, but I mean the talent is there. They're in our top ten. Yeah, for us, eh? (laughs) you know. uh, Trust me, we've got to this point by not talking about Texas so far, and I was going, "Woof." I don't know. (laughs) You know, uh, it seems like I get my hopes up and then get them dashed by week five every single year. So, um, but uh, you know, uh, we'll see. But uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. (laughs) No, no. I mean, I'm 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 kind of grasping at straws a little bit. Uh, it's, it's very similar. You know, I'm, I'm tempted to say a lot of the same things I said with USC and some of what I said with Miami. I mean, this eight by Texas's name scares me because (laughs) it's, you know, I mean, it's a bit of a joke, right? That, um, when you look at a a preseason top 25, it's number one, Alabama, number two, you know, uh, Ohio state, the others are, you know, the, the most experienced teams that recruit well, you know, blah, 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 whole list of, you know, one up one, it's bowl game, um, brought in some impact transfers and then number 24, Texas, <laughs> you know, just every year it seems. And, and this year, I mean, we, we certainly have taken that a step further and I do, you know, have to mention if, if you're still listening to us as a first timer, um, these rankings in no way indicate, you know, opinion in no way indicate an expected order of finish. It's just mm-hmm. who would be favored against who on a neutral field based on our calculations that take into account, you know, talent, uh, coaching history, team history. And there are many times where, where Nick looks at these rankings and goes, Oh, I don't know about that. You know, yeah. you, you've already heard throughout the team previews yeah. uh, where he goes, yeah. I wish we weren't on this. I wish we weren't on that. So it does <laughs> now, one happen. thing I will say, um, and it's, it's, you know, you, you said it already, like, Oh, get ready to hear under, 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 under part of me, as we were going through this, uh, you know, we were on the flip side in the one twenties where it was over, 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 over. Part of it is, you know, on those extremes, I don't mind uh, because it's a lot easier to win two games uh, than it is, you know, to, to uh, go winless. Uh, it's, it's a lot easier to lose two games than it is to go undefeated. Um, and so on the one hand, I'm, I'm okay with us being on a lot of unders on the other. I, I wonder if this is kind of a unique year where it really does seem, and we'll get into this, you know, once we get to that top two, but it really does seem that there's a big gap between number two and number three and, and, you know, the way I see it. Uh, And there's a huge gap between like number four and number five. And so perhaps, you know, even though these teams are five, six, seven, eight in our rankings, if we were to look back and, and use the same you know formula 
last year or 2020 or 2019, maybe these top 10 teams would be, you know, 15th or 16th, 17th. It, it seems to me that after that top two, things start to even out quite a bit. And so I was a little surprised to see like, oh yeah, our, our you know, top 10 teams and I'm putting in the, the projected uh, records and it's one after the other in this group we're talking about today, eight and four, eight and four, eight and four, eight and four. And that seems weird, but, you know, certainly there'll be uh, a handful of 10 win teams. Um, but it does seem that that the, you know, number of teams that's possible outcomes are between seven and 10 wins is bigger this year. Um, and we just happened to talk about a particular subset of them today where, optimism nationally or, or, you know, isn't super high or at least skepticism is quite high. So, um, you know, Texas favored in 10 regular season games, uh, that Alabama game certainly is not one of them. They're a coin flip against Oklahoma. We have them favored uh, in all the rest, but do I trust them to beat Baylor and Oklahoma state and Oklahoma and, uh, Iowa state and, you know, no, not necessarily. Um, but I do think this Texas team is is got certainly the talent and the potential to you know get over this eight and a half number. Uh, it's just again another you know I'll believe it when I see it, and uh, we haven't really seen it very much lately. They're a difficult team to trust, but perhaps you know this is the the step toward them solidifying themselves, getting back into a, a consistent top ten team. We'll we'll just have to see. Javier, what do you think about my Longhorns this year? I mean, I'm almost afraid to ask you that question, knowing about your pure brutality on occasion. Uh, but really, it's the defense. It's what I said. Can the defense hold up and challenge for a Big 12 title? Yeah, it's absolutely the defense. It's always and forever been the defense. Uh, first and foremost, just a PSA. Don't take the Alabama game as anything but a grain of salt. Like, just don't. Like, yeah, many teams have tried, many teams have failed of playing an early season game against Alabama. Just that's that's no barometer. Now, if you beat Alabama, completely different, you know, take that as sure, take it for whatever. But if you get beat by 30, don't take that as anything. You can still win the big, you can still win the big 12 and be perfectly fine. Um, but ultimately, the the biggest question, like you said, is going to be defensively, it's also going to be on the consistency of Quinn Ewers. I talked about this as. Uh, a second ago with Caleb Williams. As great as Caleb Williams was last year, he was rather inconsistent at times. The biggest problem for you guys has been, to an extent, an inconsistency at the quarterback position. You guys went from a Casey Thompson to Hudson Card to Casey Thompson to Hudson Card back to Casey Thompson. And I think that ultimately there was no continuity there, and it showed in the it shows really in the stats of your receivers. You know, your, your receiver stats could be extremely better than what they were, in my opinion, if you had a consistent quarterback play who was, you know, excelling at that role. On the flip side of that, most of the most games, your quarterbacks were just either not comfortable throwing in the pocket or just running for their lives. And it just didn't feel like they had a consistent comfortability back there that would you would ask for, a, you know, a full-time starter. Quinn Ewers might ultimately end up being that guy. Great. That's what I hope to see. Um, you know, Xavier Worthy, in my opinion, is one of the best pure receivers in college football if he can get the, the proper reps, if he can get the proper targets, um, you know, and that's obviously keeping Quinn Ewers upright. He tried out there a pretty young offensive line. You're featuring two freshmen and, and two sophomores. So it's a little bit of a concern, but once again, if they're great, they're great. Uh, you know, if they're able to play and hit the ground running, then, you know, all bets are off. Uh, defensively, 
man, I, your biggest problems right now, and this is something that I talked about Miami, you got a ton of seniors. You got a ton of juniors. In their time at Texas, they haven't done anything. They, they just haven't. And they've got to either one turn a corner or this year's just going to be exactly like it was last year. And that's, you know, just very indicative of, of certain rosters is you look at it and you go, has this big guy only been here for three years? Has this guy only been here for four years? And you're saying that not just because, you know, you know, you, you see his name all the time, but also because you're waiting for him to take that next step. You're waiting for him to get to the NFL draft and make plays elsewhere. And when you look at your defense, you, 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 you know, you mentioned uh, Overshone. He's obviously the face of this whole situation. You guys have to take a next step defensively. And if it's not going to be with these older guys, then hurrah for the younger guys that come in next year that maybe, you know, switch it up. But when you have these many seniors and juniors on your defense, they have yet to really take that next step as a defense. You're either going to become very comfortable in seeing what you've always seen, which for you in the last couple of years, Scott, has been poor tackling. I'm not comfortable. You know, or you're going to finally decide to make a decision and, and, you know, move forward or, you know, make a shift defensively you know some guys i understand that they're seniors and juniors but we've got to we've got to see some shifts there's a kid behind him that's playing better than playing there's no rule to this seniority does not count on a football field um and for texas meritocracy that's right i mean defensively you've got to make a step especially when you look at your schedule and outside of the alabama game you should win almost every game in your first five um you know you should beat ulm you should beat utsa you should beat texas tech you should beat west virginia Period. Um, then you play Oklahoma and Oklahoma State in a three, you know, in a three-week stretch. Also included in there is Iowa State. That's going to be obviously the barometer for me in your season. And really, the Oklahoma game, I can't use as much of a barometer because, as weird as it's been over the last couple of years, I refuse to use that game of any indication of either team's successes because, as we saw in last year's game, you can blow a humongous lead. The year before that, you guys went to like four overtimes. I refuse to use that game. Um, the Oklahoma State game is still water. For me, it's a much more indicative game for you guys because if Texas – I hate to say this because I'm going to ruffle some feathers with this. If Texas is back, that's a game that you handle. You go into Oklahoma State. Maybe Quinn Ewers at that point has solidified himself as a starting quarterback. That's a game where you remind everybody that you're Texas. It's not against Georgia in a, in a, in a bowl game. It's against your, your, your conference rivals yeah. as of right now on the road against a team that was – inches away from winning the big 12 last year and then you finish off your season at home against baylor where you beat them you know you beat them once again and find yourself in the big 12 championship game the other piece to this and this is my last on this texas has got to avoid that loss that that's just embarrassing they just have to they haven't been able to do so in the last couple years obviously last year was kansas but even when you lose to like tcu and you throw three picks that's not good enough. Oh, the that's- whole state has let us know, you know, when uh uh when when the athletic the AD was talking to, you know, uh members of uh the Texas Congress and they said, "Oh, well, all that money to lose to TCU six of the last seven years, you know." Right. Like uh I, it's embarrassing. It, it is. It's embarrassing for a program uh with that much tradition. So. Right. And and so, you know, what you're looking for from this team is you're looking for just a complete turnaround. And, you know, unlike when I was talking about Miami, I felt like Miami was trending in the right direction last year. They just lost some games early and then and, and weren't able to – and then bounced back in the second half of the year. Last year was abysmal. It, it's got to be better. You guys could have easily finished last year 4-8 and eight if you – you know, and you barely beat Kansas State 22-17 to end the season off. You easily could have been 4-8 and eight last season. Uh, and, and I think that 
when you look at this year coming up, as good as the Big 12 is, I think there's some more defined teams in there this year with your Baylors and your Oklahoma States that kind of took a little people, some people by surprise last year. Texas understands who the, is right in front of them now. There's no, you know, smoke and mirrors here. It's Oklahoma. It's Oklahoma State. It's Baylor. You beat two of those three teams or all three of those teams, you can then start to talk about Texas moving in the right direction. If you lose all three of those and you still and you finish eight and four, I re, I refuse to say it. So yeah, I, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with the under because I'm just not 100 comfortable in, in what. Sorry. I'm not comfortable, and I'm just not comfortable with it. And the other piece of this is, is at the end of the day, if you lose to Alabama, please don't. You guys can't let that slide into a loss at Texas Tech or to West Virginia in the next three in one of the next three weeks. Uh, I don't think one will have anything to do with the others. But okay, cool. you're right. You're yeah. right. You know, I've just seen teams. Florida State comes to mind. Lost to Alabama. Lost a ton of players in that game. Season was a complete wash. So I, I mean, we've lost to West Virginia without having Alabama beat the tar out of us the week before. So, you know, uh, like I said, I don't think it'll have anything to do uh, with Alabama coming in and smoking us at all. I do love Quinn Ewers. I love what your offense looks like right now. Bijan Robinson is the best running back in in football. Xavier Worthy can be the best receiver in college football. Yes, I said it. And Quinn Ewers can be the best quarterback next year. Sorry, Bryce Young still exists. Um, so I, I, your offense is moving in the right direction, but that's never necessarily been the problem. Your defense has to find a way to get pressure on the quarterback and stop and tap. Just, I mean, things that are sound very simple, but we have not seen on the field consistently. If they can do those things, Texas will go over. I'm not sure they'll do, they'll do, they'll do those things. So I'm going to say, uh, they go under and with eight wins. And let, let's just clarify one thing. I, I just want to make sure everyone knows this. Bijan, best running back on planet Earth, not just the country. So, planet right. Earth. Yeah. So, Need uh, Texas bias in here. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I, I got I got to brag about something. Uh, let's go to uh, number seven, uh, rank one spot ahead of Texas, which hurts my heart. Oklahoma. The Sooners dodged several close calls during a nine and zero start, but dropped two of the last three to end the regular season, ten and two, and falling short of the Big Twelve title game. OU beat Oregon in the Alamo Bowl for win number 11 last season. Nine and a half is the DK win total. We have them at eight and four, another eight and four team. So we're under the nine and a half. Nick, Brent Venables returns to Oklahoma for his first head coaching job. And despite the roster and coaching turnover, the Sooners are our team to beat in the Big 12 and are favored in all games, in all 12 games, in all of our three models. Is OU actually underrated? at uh spot number seven and you know are they underrated because riley left and people uh, have lowered expectations for this team overall well it's possible um oklahoma is a team that our projections have loved as long as we've been doing them i'm not i'm not sure we've ever had oklahoma uh as an underdog in a regular season game i mean it's just you know last year they were uh, top, top three, I think, preseason for us and, and uh, seemed like they were able to, to just do enough to get by uh, until finally, you know, it, it fell apart and, and uh, knew it was coming, I guess. But uh, Xavier has pointed out for years now that, that we've just been, you know, too high. We've had Oklahoma too, uh, you know, just overrated and it hasn't worked out. It makes me uh you know a little nervous again another coaching change another new head coach it is 
just a little more difficult. It's just, a, you know, somebody learning to do that job for the very first time um, really doesn't matter how old they are, really doesn't matter, you know, where they came from last. It's just different. And some people adjust to it better than others. Some people adjust to being, you know, in charge better than others, the uh, administrative duties. And Brent Venables might be the very best, you know, head coach we've seen. It, it's it's certainly um, – you know, it's certainly possible that he will just come in and keep Oklahoma uh, as a top 10 team um, and potentially even a little bit better. Maybe he does some things better than Lincoln Riley. I'm not sure, but it's always a little bit of an unknown and it always, you know, makes me just a, a little bit nervous to have a team so high in our uh, rankings that is dealing with a, a first time head coach. That being said, you know, I, I think that um, uh, there are some folks out there who are just being a little too quick to say that Oklahoma's um, just going to take a, a step back. And, you know, I do really like Lincoln Riley as a, an offensive play caller, as a, um, you know, offensive mind. Um, think that despite coming up short of our projections a few years in a row. Uh, I think he did a pretty good job at Oklahoma. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that there are some things to like about this team. I do like Dylan Gabriel, probably, you know, Oklahoma would have uh, felt a little more comfortable at quarterback. Certainly if Caleb Williams had decided to stay, but I think that bringing in um, a 25-game starter who has a history with your new offensive coordinator, Jeff Levy, they were both at UCF together uh, a few years ago, that's a, that's a pretty good starting point. Um, he inherited a talented roster. Marvin Mims took a big step back last year production-wise, but was you know a freshman All-American type in, in 2020. Um, I think there's definitely a chance that he recaptures uh, you know some of what made him so good as a true freshman. Theo Weiss hopefully is back and, and fully healthy. Drake Stoops has been uh, you know pretty consistent, productive at times. Um, at least somebody that that you know has a lot of experience. Um, they added some other transfers in that receiving group that I think there's reason to be optimistic about LV Bunkley Shelton, uh, kind of reaching the potential that he, you know, didn't quite, uh, reach at, at Arizona state, but perhaps this offense will do a little bit better job of showcasing him. Uh, JJ Hester from Missouri could step in and, and play a role. And then also some of the higher rated recruits over the last few years, you know, Jalil Farouk. Uh, was a high four-star guy, hasn't played a whole lot, but, you know, has that potential. And then we heard a lot of buzz about the 6'5 freshman Jaden Gibson this spring, who uh, seems like he could come in and, and be a big-time instant impact performer. A couple of those guys in the in the running back room, Eric Gray is back, Marcus Major uh, is back. Those two seem to be the most likely to, you know, be the the quote unquote starter at the beginning of the season. But Javante Barnes, Gavin Sawchuck are both highly rated running back recruits as true freshmen and and each has, you know, generated a, a 
different buzz at, at different times since they've arrived on campus. So um, you mix that together with an offensive line that returns three starters, added a couple uh, of transfers who could, you know, find a spot, uh, if not in the starting lineup, in the, you know, rotation. And offensively, I think that Oklahoma's, you know, maybe they might not operate at a top six level like they were last year in team performance, top 15 passing and rushing both. But I do think that this is probably a top 20 offense. And I think that, you know, Jeff Levy's track record at UCF at Ole Miss um, is strong enough to indicate that uh, he's going to be able to, to put this unit in position to put up a lot of points defensively, which has been sort of the, the biggest issue for Oklahoma and why they've come up short for us more often than not. Uh, last year, they ranked 60th in defensive team performance. You know, they've ranked 49th or worse uh, in all but one year since 2016. But Brent Venables is arguably the best defensive play caller in college football. Um, his Clemson units were consistently, I mean, consistent is a is is a, a word for it. But you know, consistently among the best in the country, he would be our number one uh, defensive coordinator if you know if if he were the uh, getting that full time um, spot in our ratings. So it's to me, you know, Oklahoma had plenty of defensive talent. They had what, one, two, three, four, five guys drafted off of last year's defense. This year's defense, the experience piece of the puzzle, gives me a, a little bit of a concern. Only three full-time starters are back, even though they did rotate you know, quite a few guys in, and you've got 400, 500 uh, snap players at every level of the defense. Um, I do think that they perhaps will play better under Venables and under this new defensive coaching staff might be able to, to actually help them realize that potential, that NFL talent that they've been able to, you know, recruit to Oklahoma, but just haven't quite been able to, to turn it into top 25 or top 10 level defenses consistently. I'm not saying they'll get to that, you know, level immediately, but again, you know, if they're a top 20, top 25 offense, I think, you know, top 40, top maybe even top 25 defense this year and then uh certainly you would expect that over the next few years this probably will become a little bit more of a defense first team um under venables uh that i could be a a, a long-term win perhaps for for oklahoma but for this year specifically i do think at the very least they will make some progress on on that side of the ball so um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of folks out there who are high on Baylor. We've talked plenty about how for us, the numbers just don't quite add up, but Oklahoma gets Baylor at home. So whether or not you think they're a top 10 team or a top 40 team to me, I think Oklahoma probably should be favored in that game. They also get Oklahoma state at home. That's, you know, that's pretty big. Um, though Kansas state is a lot of people's, you know, dark horse or surprise Big 12 title contender, they also host the Wildcats. I mean, it's it's the beginning of Big 12 play, so maybe the timing is not ideal for a first-time head coach, um, but Oklahoma will be coming off the trip to Nebraska. You know, they will have been tested by that time. Um, 
seems to me another home game against one of your tougher opponents, one of your top challengers, probably a good thing. Oklahoma probably should be favored in that game. So I think that, you know, the talent is pretty good. The the level of talent that Britt Venables inherited uh, is solid. Top 10 level, um, pretty much, you know, across the board. They're sixth in overall roster strength, seventh on offense, 12th on defense. They had a, you know, big hole at the quarterback position once Williams uh, transferred out. I think they filled that pretty well. Uh, I think they addressed some other areas of concern, the defensive line being high on that list uh, through the transfer portal. And the schedule, the way I see it, shape, you know, shapes up pretty well. Um, we are technically on the under nine and a half. Uh, we do have Oklahoma only winning eight games. Uh, but if this were, you know, based on my opinion, I think there's probably uh, many more outcomes where Oklahoma gets back to 10 wins than they do win eight. Or, or, you know, nine, yeah, maybe. But um, I think our projection is probably a little too low on Oklahoma. I think that that this could very well be uh, a 10-win team. And, and you know, I think that us having them as the team to beat in the Big 12 is, is probably correct. What do you think, Xavier? Do you think that uh, Oklahoma, even with the coaching change and a lot of players leaving, is going to still be your easy favorite in the Big 12? I won't go with easy, just simply because they weren't able to get it done last year either. Um, and also, I'm not – I'm going to show some biases here. I'm not a huge fan of Dylan Gabriel. I like the kid. I just think there's a certain level of gunslinger mentality he has that scares me a little bit. Um, he trusts his arm talent a little bit too much sometimes. Um, and if he gets that under control, fine. Right? But sometimes I feel like he puts himself in bad situations trying to do a little bit too much. Uh, on the flip side, I love Eric Gray. Uh, I love what they have uh, talent-wise on the in, on the outside as well. A little short for me. Uh, the, the, not the tallest receiving core. I know that sounds weird. And coming from guy who's 5'9", not the tallest receiving core. Uh, I don't think that necessarily will have too much of a problem with that, but just an observation. Um, so offensively, I, I think they'll be fine. I, I don't know how explosive, how explosive they'll be under Venables and his staff. Um, I don't see a, a too like a significant drop off, but just enough um, without Caleb Williams and without some of the guys on, on that roster. Defensively, I'm really excited to see what Venables does with Oklahoma. Now, Nick last year came into the year talking about how Oklahoma's defense was going to be this, you know, vaunted unit that had all the right pieces. And if you look at last year's bowl game, they went amazing. And then they came out and played just like Oklahoma's defense has of years past. Under Venables, that might change. Now, I'm not going to say it's going to change in year one, uh, just be, just simply because I feel like you're still doing this with some of you know uh, Riley's guys. But I do think that there you'll see uh, some some definite changes on how they run uh, that defense and how important that defense is, um, and, and the focus that that defense will have on it all year long because it's not Venables at the helm rather than Venables, Lincoln Riley. Defensive coach means there's going to be a ton more pressure not only from, you know, inside the, the, the organization, but outside the media. If, if the defense is bad, they're going to look at Venables and be like, hey, man, you're supposed to be the best defensive coordinator in college football. Why does your defense suck? So that's going to be a huge, you know, a, a huge important part of the year for them to see if it shifts um, from, from good to bad or from, from bad to good. Excuse me. When you look at their schedule, they should walk up into the Texas game like 
UTEP, Kent State, Nebraska, Kansas State, TCU. Now, obviously, Kansas State feels like their bogey team every year. I'm not I'm not willing to go on that limb just yet. Got to watch the first couple of games before I decide that. Um, you look at the back half of their schedule. They play Baylor um, and, and Oklahoma State in, in within a, a three-week span. Um, that, for me, obviously is going to be hugely important. The one positive, though, they get both of those games at home. That's hugely important, I think, for them this year, as I do think, once again, Dylan Gabriel is a guy who I think plays better at home than he does on the road. I think, you know, he's going to need to be in front of his his, his hometown, you know, uh, his home fans, excuse me. And Dylan Gabriel isn't the quarterback by that time, whether or not, you know, Nick Evers has taken that job or, you know, Dylan Gabriel has lost that job. Evers is, hey, Nick, I'm going to tell you, I'm not a big fan of Dylan Gabriel. Just going to put that out there. His time at UCF made me very skeptical of what he's going to do against against better talent. Just going to come right out and say it. Um, so if Nick Evers is the quarterback by that time, he's going to obviously need that home, uh, you know, that home cooking uh, to, to help him out as well. This is a team that if everything goes right, you know, they're, they're a team that's going to compete for the Big 12. They're going to be right there next to, you know, Oklahoma State, next to Baylor, next to Texas, obviously. I'm going to go under. No, I'm going to go over. I'm going to go over because I think that they that trying to find a third loss for them is a little bit harder than trying to say that they will only lose two games. Uh, so I'm going to say over. I think they win 10 games, 10 to 11. Now, there's going to be a loss in there, whether that's to Texas, whether that's to Baylor, Oklahoma State, or whether that's what I don't see coming, like to a Kansas State. There's going to be a loss on there. And when you have a guy in Venables that's trying to change kind of a culture shift, if you really think about it, because of how much he's going to focus on the defense and try to, you know, come in there and be like, we're not going to be every Oklahoma defense. And then you go out there and you look like every every other Oklahoma defense. There's going to be some time in there where the offense is going to have to carry. Uh, and can the defense get enough stops in Brad Venables first year with all the changes that he's going to be making to that defense? He's a guy who loves to blitz, loves to stunt, loves to give you different looks pre-snap. All of those, that that all for those kids, they're going through a whole new defensive, you know, uh, you know, in my opinion, they're going through a whole different type of defense that they're going to be having to run this year. One, but two, Brad Venables is also somebody who likes to have some familiarity on his defenses. That's why he's able to do so many different things and add so many different looks to it, uh, which led to so much success at Clemson. So that's going to take some time to kind of co- become cohesive there uh, at Oklahoma. And I think that may lead to maybe a loss here or there on the schedule um, with just, you know, him doing a little bit too much defensively. We've seen it before where he went out there with a game plan that just didn't work. Um, so I like Oklahoma. I think they're going to be right there next to Oklahoma state or Baylor to win the big 12 championship. Sorry, Scott, but I don't see why this team couldn't win 10 games. I also can see the rails coming off if Dylan Gabriel does play is underwhelming. Man, I, I like Dylan Gabriel. I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. You know, I, yeah. I, he's, he's been pretty solid. I think he might. I like uh, him a lot. He might be able to push himself on the NFL radars a little bit too. I think in Oklahoma. I'm just just so. not been a huge fan. That's, yeah. I, <laughs> we'll I don't know. It's okay. I mean, that's the big, that's, (laughs) yeah, that's a big determining factor for Oklahoma too, is how well Gabriel will play. So, uh, we will see. Let's go over to team number six, Utah. Utah overcame a slow start, uh, and losses to BYU, San Diego State, and Oregon State to win the Pac 12. The Utes blew out Oregon twice and nearly knocked off Ohio State in the Rose Bowl during a 10 and four season. Nine is their DK win total. We have them at eight and four, another eight and four team. So we are under the nine for Utah. Uh, Nick, for Utah, Utah doesn't always have the most talented roster. And, and the Utes sometimes lose games they shouldn't. However, most see this team as the Pac 12 favorite this year. 
Will the Utes repeat in 2022? So they are our highest rated Pac-12 team. Um, finished you know, sixth in overall team performance last year. Have played at a top 10 level uh, in our three and five year weighted team performance averages. So it's, you know, kind of the opposite of the USC, the Texas, the Miami, where you can trust Utah uh, more often than not. And it might not always work out. Obviously, you know, you, you mentioned their slow start last year. They do on occasion slip up and, and lose a game that you would expect that they wouldn't. Uh, but they are also capable of beating teams that are more talented. And, and Utah is a fringe top 25 roster. They're 27th in roster strength, 20th on offense, 43rd on defense. Uh, they do have to replace a first-round draft pick, which is um, you know a, a pretty big deal. I mean, Devin Lloyd was one of the very best defensive players in college football last year. And then Mika Tafua, um, who went undrafted, was actually one of the most productive pass rushers in the country last year. He's a he's a big loss as well. So um, defensively, you know, the the talent level took a little bit of a dip, even though Clark Phillips, all Pac-12 corner, and, uh, you know, I've seen some uh, projections or, or, you know, mocks that think that he could be a first-round talent um, in the, the next draft. You know, that is certainly uh, somebody to build around. The linebacker core, you know, they addressed through the transfer portal to try to replace Lloyd's production and Mohamed Diabate from Florida uh, probably is, I, I think, going to do a pretty good job um, of being that productive linebacker. You know, Lloyd was was pretty special, um, but I, I do think that Diabate and then they also added Gabe uh, Reed, a transfer from uh, Stanford, pardon me. It seems like they, you know, are, are going to do a pretty good job of replacing at least the production, if not the overall talent. I think that, you know, Van Fillinger probably has a, a chance to uh, fill up the stat sheet even more. He was kind of the, the number two pass rusher in most every category behind Tafua last year, and he I would expect is going to have an opportunity to take it to an even higher level. Um, and Utah pretty consistently, you know, leads with its defense, uh, though the numbers have been trending a little bit in the wrong direction. They were six in defensive team performance in 2018, seven in 2019, 17 in 2020, 23rd last year. They still, you know, usually uh, put up pretty good numbers more often than not, but last year were, you know, ranked fifth in, offensive team performance and they actually do bring back quite a bit more on the offensive side of the ball cam rising the quarterback uh you know didn't start the season um top of the depth chart charlie brewer was actually you know the the one who started the first few games rising took over this team got a lot better tavion thomas at running back you know huge touchdown numbers didn't actually play <laughs> a, a a uh, large percentage of snaps for Utah, but was very, very productive. Um, went over 1,100 yards, 21 touchdowns, and seems like he's in line for 
you know, just as, as big of a workload. Uh, they might even choose to lean on him a little bit more, depending on how things shake out behind him. Michael Bernard, his type, or excuse me, his top uh, backup, spent some time on defense in the Rose Bowl last year. Um, hearing a lot of really, really good things about true freshman Jalen Glover, but, you know, not all true freshmen are ready to come in and, and uh, take on a big-time role immediately. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, does Tavion Thomas get a really heavy workload or um, is he going to get, you know, to rest a little bit with some of the depth that they have at that position? We know Utah has one of the best tight end duos, certainly in the Pac-12, um, and maybe outside of, you know, Georgia and, and one or two teams, uh, certainly I think would rank among the very best in college football. Brant Keithy, who sounds like has been spending some time at wide receiver, uh, in addition to tight end and Dalton Kincaid, very solid one, two duo. Um, also hearing a lot of really, really good things about Devon Bailey, uh, six, four, two Oh seven. There are some, you know, some, some coaching quotes to indicate that maybe he might be the, you know, next thousand yard receiver at Utah. That would be a bit of a, you know, bit of a change and, and bit, bit of a, uh, step up for them. And, and for him in particular, he had less than 400 yards last year, just one touchdown, but um, somebody that they like a lot. And with Cam rising, you know, really kind of elevating the the quarterback play for Utah last season, perhaps we will start to see uh, that potential payoff a, a little bit more. The offensive line should be in really good shape. Um, they had a couple of guys banged up missed time last year, but you know, Three full-time starters returned. Two of those guys have been all Pac-12 performers in the past. So Utah really doesn't have a major weak spot on the roster. And, you know, the the areas where they had some turnover, they addressed with uh, transfers and, and with, you know, some talented newcomers. So I think that Utah is deservedly, you know, the favorite in the Pac-12 and the highest ranked Pac-12 team. Uh, that said, I feel like the Pac-12 has some, you know, has a few more options at the top this year. I do think that USC is a legitimate threat. I do think that UCLA is going to be a tough team to beat. Um, they might not be, you know, super consistent. Their team, I've said before, difficult to trust. Uh, but Utah has to go to UCLA then turn around the very next week, play USC at home. Do they get, do they, do they uh, win both of those games? You know, I, I, I tend to think that, that they might drop one. Um, they have to go to Oregon late in the year. They're a slight underdog in that game. Certainly a winnable game. Like you mentioned, they dominated Oregon twice last season, but you know, that, that, that is a, very talented team and will be a tough test. So I think if I were to say Utah or the field to win the Pac-12, probably going to pick the field. I probably think somebody out of USC, UCLA, or Oregon has a, a better than 50% chance of, of uh, getting it done and, and winning the Pac-12. But Utah is, is uh, certainly capable of beating any team it plays. And that includes going to the swamp and beating Florida in week one. We have that as a virtual toss up. Uh, that includes going to Eugene and beating Oregon. 
to UCLA and and beating uh, the Bruins in the Rose Bowl. And, and, you know, they've had USC's number uh, more often than not recently. So they are certainly capable of winning all of those games. I'm just not sure that they're going to actually, you know, be able to do it, get it done, beat all the top teams in the Pac-12 and avoid a loss, you know, like last season to Oregon State, a team that, you know, they they really shouldn't have lost to. So I, I think that Utah, as good as they are, as well coached as they are, as talented and in some ways experienced as they are, um, I, I think that when we look up at the end of the year, um, there's a pretty good chance that somebody else will be, you know, hoisting that, uh, pack, uh, excuse me, Pac-12 trophy at the end of the year. What do you think, Xavier? I mean, lots of talent in the Pac-12 here. Utah, one of those teams that makes it happen, though. It seems like year in and year out, they're uh, even if they're not at the tippy top, they're at least they're at least the pesky team that is gonna gonna hurt someone uh, in their hopes to win the Pac-12. So, uh, do you think they should be the favorites here? Or do you still like a team like USC? Maybe UCLA will break through. What do you think about Utah? I mean, they should win the Pac-12. I'm going to just say it outright. I, I think that team is extremely talented. Another thing, another thing that's extremely scary about Utah <laughs> is the fact that their team offensively, or actually on both sides of the ball, is rel- relatively young. Uh, you look at their defense, full of sophomores. I mean, their starting defensive, their starting defensive line is all going to be all sophomores. Their secondary, for the most part, is all sophomores except for their starting free safety, RJ Hubbard uh, or Hubert. Um, you know, uh, you know. Nick alluded to the fact that they tried to go out there and replace the linebacker play that they lost last year uh, with losing Devin Lloyd with, uh, with uh, Mamou Diabate, who's going to probably come and fit in and have to do a ton for them in that position. But realistically, that, that this team could be good for, for at least another year. Uh, and that's all depending on whether or not Cam Rising decides to leave uh, being, you know, a redshirt junior, he has that opportunity to do so. But this is, this is a team that should, that should win the, the PAC 12 again. They should, you know, and then last year, and they won it, you know. I think a lot of people don't re- realize they won the Pac-12 last year without starting pretty poorly, uh, you know. And I think that this is a team that found its footing, um, you know. I embarrassingly on this podcast picked Oregon in both of those games last year, uh, but you know, I think this is a team that p- can put itself on the the path to a playoff if they go into Ben Hill Griffin Stadium and beat Florida in Week One. Uh, you know, I've got Florida fans who have already told me that there's no chance Utah's winning that game. They're not going to understand how to handle the humidity, all this, yada, yada, yada. If Utah comes in there and, and beats Florida, that this is going to be a scary team that people have to watch out for and could very well find itself in the college football playoff. Um, I, I think, obviously, you pencil in a couple of games on their schedule as, um, you know, barometer games, Florida, USC, Oregon. If they can – navigate those three games correctly and win all three or win two out of three. They're going to give themselves an excellent chance uh, to win the Pac-12. I, I really love Cameron Rising. I think last year he, it, he, it took him a minute to find his footing. Um, I think once he found it, though, it was almost impossible to stop that kid, not only just from a pa- not only just from the pocket, uh, but last year he excelled in understanding when to use his legs. And that was so impressive to watch from him. He just never looked, especially down the stretch, he just didn't look like he didn't know what he wanted to do. Um, you know, he he looked poised. He looked like he had, you know, what he wanted to do in sight the majority of the time. And even when you go back and, you know, you look at his performances, uh, you know, even in the Rose Bowl against Ohio State, almost ran for 100 yards, 17 to 22, 214, two touchdowns. 
found a way to be effective without having to change the game completely. I think this is the year he decides to step out of that mold, less of a game manager, steps into more of a, of a dominant force on their offense. And he will have to uh, just because of some of the talent that they lost. Uh, but I think he can do it. And I think that he showed you with some of the games last year, he has the propensity, he has the ability to do it. Excuse me. You know, the UFC last game was very indicative of what I thought he could be if he was able to do that every game. Right. Uh, against USC, for people who don't remember, two, uh, 22 of 28, 306, three touchdowns, no interceptions. I think that's, that he's a guy who can do that game in and game out. And I think he'll have to do it uh, this year uh, to, for, the, for them to be a little bit more explosive offensively. But I, I have no I have no you know qualms or worries about him being able to do so uh, defensively. Utah is who Utah is. I, I don't even know the last time Utah had a bad defense. Maybe Nick can tell me. I just they just feel they just feel very steady defensively. They don't feel like they do that like they're overly uh, they're overrated ever. They just kind of do what they're supposed to do. They're kind of in the right position, and you know whether that means that they're going to excel defensively is is a different question. But or excuse me, not excel, but be you know a top ten defense is a different question. They're always, in my opinion, though, just kind of steady, and they give you what you what, what you kind of ask for from a defense in the Pac-12. Which you know, some games that means you give up three to four scores, but as long as your offense is handling business, then you're fine. You know, even go back to 2019, the year that they went 11 and two in the regular season, or excuse me, 11 and one in the regular season, their defense was just really lights out. And I think that that's just kind of become become a commonplace at Utah. So I'm not really worried about their defense. Um, obviously, you're gonna have a really good look at that against USC, like I talked about a second ago. It's literally gonna be, in my opinion, that part best on best. But Utah's offense, in my opinion, and as of right now, just looking on paper, uh, is you know is better than what I think. You know, I think Utah, Utah's offense is better than USC's defense as of right now, what I've seen. And Nick, thank you for the numbers. Forty third in twenty seventeen and twenty sixteen is the worst in in our current record. So that's not bad. <laughs> that's really not bad uh, when you look at a grand scheme. And so I, I think that Utah's a Texas team- might be a top ten team if their defense was forty. Yeah, really, realistically, yeah. <laughs> Shots fired. Uh, but no, I'm going to go with the over on Utah. I, I think this is a team that should win 10 games minimum. Um, obviously, you look at the Florida game as being maybe the one outlier. Uh, but I think as of right now, until shown differently, they've got Oregon's number. They beat they beat the brakes off of them both times. Um, so they've got Oregon's number. Now, I know Oregon will want to get back, and the game is at Austin Stadium in Eugene. So it's going to be a little bit of a different atmosphere. But once again, I mean, hey, until you beat them, Oregon can't really say much to them. Uh, USC is a team that I think, once again, will have to kind of wait and see what they look like because of the amount of transfers that they have. Uh, maybe that game, you know, you pencil that in. And other than that, maybe the fact that you're playing UCLA on the road at the Rose Bowl can be a trap game. It's right before the USC matchup. Um, might find yourself, you know, looking ahead to maybe a, a USC team that might be ranked in the top five or top six at that point. And that's the only trap game I really see on their schedule, but it is a legitimate trap game. If they're able to navigate that, navigate that well, they'll be back in the Pac-12 championship game and they should win the Pac-12. And if they do all of that, they'll probably be in the playoff. Utah will more than likely be in the playoff at that point because they'll have the resume, they'll have the ranked opponents, and they would have been an SEC opponent, which if you have that on your schedule, nine times out of 10, and you're an undefeated P5 team, there's really not much you can say. All right, let's move into the top five here. LSU at number five. LSU opened up three and one, but lost five of six midseason, during which the administration announced it would move on 
from 2019 national champion coach Ed Orgeron. The depleted Tigers finished six and seven after a bowl loss to K-State. Seven is their DK win total. We have them at eight and four, so this is an over for us, uh, over seven uh, for the Tigers. LSU, Nick, of all the potentially overrated teams we've discussed today, LSU may raise the most eyebrows. What are the uh, why are the Tigers projected to be a top five team for us this season uh, after what has been a disastrous couple last years? Yeah, LSU is is certainly our you know we're we're out on a limb with LSU. We are out all alone. Uh, you know, most projections I think even on the high side uh, might have LSU as like a top 15 team, something like that. But um, we are, you know, top five. That one, when I saw the initial uh, rankings, you know, I thought uh, as the the roster updates were coming through and I was looking at it and I thought, you know, okay, maybe LSU's got a chance to be a little bit better than most people think. I mean, new coach, uh, disappointing, you know, coming off a disappointing season, kind of a, a – uh, record that that's been moving in the wrong direction since that national title. Um, but when I actually saw, you know, at first top 10 and then it kept sort of creeping higher and higher to, to where we are now at number five, I just thought, Oh boy, that, you know, <laughs> makes me, makes me nervous. This is certainly the, probably the silliest we look when I, you know, tweet out our one thirty one uh, rankings. So, I understand. I, I, I definitely think that there's a good chance that LSU is overrated in our current projections. But, you know, the reason the numbers sort of shook out the way that they did in a large point, you know, large part of it is talent. LSU, according to our roster strength numbers, has the third best roster in the country. Defensively, they are number two. Um, that is national championship level talent. Also, and it's not a huge uh, piece of the calculation, but we do take into account coaching ratings in our projections. Usually teams, you know, get a bump when they have a, a, a big time head coach, top 10 level head coach. Uh, usually it's because that coach has you know, performed at a top 10 level with that same program. At LSU, you know, they're getting Brian Kelly, who ranks eighth in our head coach ratings uh, based on his performance at Notre Dame over the last five years. He's replacing Ed Orgeron, who is in the 30s, 40s, even with, you know, a national championship, one of the best teams we've ever seen in college football in 2019. The rest of, you know, Orgeron's resume uh, was not, you know, on par was uh, to the point where he was outside of our, our top 25 rankings. And so LSU got a boost because it hired Brian Kelly. That makes me a little bit nervous because as I've said, however many new head coaches there are in FBS this year, you know, makes me a little nervous. I always tend to err on the side of uh, a new head coach sort of underperforming unless it's at the extreme end where there's really nowhere to go but up and, and maybe a new head coach should give a jolt. LSU's probably not that. I do think that there's a good chance that they will be better coached. Um, but playing at a top 10 level does seem like a little bit of a reach, especially after this team last year 
ranked 56th in overall team performance, 79th on offense, including a rushing attack that finished 121st in our team performance ratings. Defensively, however, I do think that one, you know, the defense was the better unit. They ranked 32nd in team performance overall. Um, they did that with a lot of injuries to some pretty key players, especially on the defensive line. And still the defensive line played at a really, really high level. They ranked third in our D-line performance ratings last year. But Allie Gay missed a large chunk of last year. Uh, multiple guys were in and out of the lineup in that front seven quite a bit. And I think that, you know, this unit should hopefully be healthier, is among the very best in the country. The D-line is is second in our talent numbers, uh, our, our individual you know, position unit ratings. Uh, they're number two in the country on the defensive line. They're number three at linebacker, and they're number two in the secondary. And on paper, based on, you know, the talent that LSU lost, they lost a top three draft pick in Derek Steenley. Uh, they also lost Cordell Flott, who was drafted, uh, you know, top 80 uh, selection, both corners being gone. They also lost, you know, through the transfer portal, Eli Ricks, former five-star and 13-game starter, uh, who was one of those injured players a large portion of last year. There's definitely some personnel concerns, but LSU uh, was able to go to the transfer portal and, and pull out three, four maybe, uh, new starters, guys who were highly experienced, productive players at their former schools, uh, guys who were in their fifth and sixth year, a lot of them. So, you know, mature players who would think are, are going to be able to come in, uh, learn a new playbook, you know, fit in well, be leaders in the locker room, and then hopefully, you know, translate to, to uh, play at a high level. We're talking about guys like Jarek Bernard Converse, who's a a uh, starter, 47 game starter at Oklahoma State. A um, couple of guys transferring over from Arkansas in Joe Fusha and Greg Brooks, uh, both of whom could contribute at safety or nickelback. Uh, Seven Banks was a big time recruit and former starter at Ohio State. McKee Garner, uh, you know, from Louisiana, uh, somebody who's played, started 20 games at the Sun Belt level, but is a, um, you know, the measurables are, I mean, he's listed at 6'2", 209, plays corners, been productive. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to me to see how that group, you know, plays together, adding in a couple of, uh, you know, really talented returners in Jay Ward, who is the only, you know, full-time starter coming back in the secondary, and then Major Burns, who's gotten a lot of uh, buzz, former uh, high four-star level recruit when he signed with Georgia coming out of high school and transferred to LSU this past year. So, so I actually think that the LSU defense is going to be pretty good. It is going to be difficult to beat. Uh, the questions for me are on the offensive side of the ball. And, you know, the offense did struggle at times last year, also had some injuries, um, you know, Keyshawn Butte missed some time, All-American caliber wide receiver, one of the best in the country and a potential future first-round pick. Um, you know, him coming back is is a big boost potentially to this offense. The fact that John Emery, former five-star running back, is um, after 
you know, he will unfortunately have to miss the first two games of the season uh, due to an academic issue that cost him all of last year. But him coming back, I think, will help uh, boost a running back group that also got a another you know big time former high school recruit in Noah Kane coming back home to Louisiana. You know, adding that to um, you know Amari Goodwin, another high level recruit, Josh Williams, who actually uh, was not super highly recruited, but uh, has been a you know pretty dependable backup at times. I think the talent is there for. LSU to take a, a pretty significant step forward in the run game. The offensive line, you know, personnel wise is a bit of a concern. Zero returning full-time starters. They do have guys like Garrett Dellinger, uh, Anthony Bradford, who are currently projected to be starters who got, you know, 250, 350 snaps last season, brought in a couple of uh, intriguing transfers at, at guard from, uh, lower levels, Miles Frazier transferred from FIU. Tremont Shorts is a transfer from the FCS level at East Tennessee State. Um, sounds like they will be playing a true freshman at left tackle. That's a little bit of a concern, but Will Campbell is you know one of the top offensive line recruits in the country from this most recent uh, cycle. So uh, it, it, you know, a unit that ranked 81st in O-line performance last year that was a very experienced group that, you know, had four guys, uh, or excuse me, three guys go on to be transferred and, and the fourth, or excuse me, three guys go on to be drafted and the fourth uh, signed as an undrafted free agent. There, it, It's going to be tough for it to be a much better unit uh, but I think that somewhat similar to, to the secondary, it's been rebuilt in a way where the drop-off shouldn't be huge. Um, the offensive line may be one of the weaker units, you know, relative to the rest of the roster. Um, and it is the way we, you know, calculate things. Um, but I still think that that they're going to be competitive. They're not going to get just completely manhandled week in and week out, um, despite the fact that it's a brand new looking offensive line. The the biggest, you know, the biggest concern is at quarterback. Miles Brennan, who missed all of last year with an injury, uh, learned that he wasn't going to be the starting quarterback and opted to retire from football. Um, it now apparently is down to uh, a two-person race in the transfer of Jaden Daniels from Arizona State and redshirt freshman Garrett Nussmeyer. Um, early in camp, it sounded like Nussmeyer maybe had the inside track. Most recently, it sounds like Daniels is probably going to get, uh, the nod to take that first snap, uh, first snap. They also have another really highly rated recruit, true freshman Walker Howard, uh, who could be in the mix for playing time eventually. Jane Daniels, we've, we've mentioned it, you know, plenty over the last few years, great true freshman season has regressed a bit over the last two years. Could a change of scenery help him sort of capture some of what made him uh, so intriguing, you know, as a true freshman to, at this point, I'm a little bit skeptical. He is uh, at least has the ability to be a dynamic runner. So I think that that will help LSU's, you know, uh, rushing attack a bit. Nussmeyer, I'm always partial, you know, especially at the quarterback position, if a uh, player is the son of a coach. Uh, Nussmeyer 
you know, that name is familiar to a lot of folks and, and uh, pretty synonymous, especially, you know, in SEC circles. Uh, Nussmeyer's been an offensive coordinator, it seems like, at, at half the uh, half the teams in the SEC. Uh, so I think, you know, I don't think it's a, a doomsday scenario at quarterback for LSU. It may not be great. We might be overrating it a bit. Jane Daniels might be a little overrated, uh, you know, based on some of the production he's had in the past, based on the fact that he was a pretty, you know, high four-star level recruit coming in. He's a 96 rated player in our individual player ratings. That seems a touch high to me. So even if he wins the job, I might, you know, keep he and Garrett Nussmeyer as co-starters because that evens out to about a 90. Um, it, it, you know, I think they're going to be okay at that position. They may not play national championship level, you know, get national championship level quarterback play or top five level quarterback play. But I think that the potential is there for them to get a little bit better quarterback play, maybe than a lot of folks assume right now. So we are obviously on the very, very high side for LSU. Um, I don't love it. I don't even like it. But I do think that this team is probably a little bit better than most people assume it will be. So I think that getting over the seven is highly likely. It's not our biggest edge by any means. Um, But I think that, you know, if a couple of breaks go their way and if that defense really does uh, start to play like a top 10, top five unit, then this LSU team could surprise some folks and could, you know, there's a path to 10 wins. There's a path to uh, making life difficult on Alabama who comes to Baton Rouge. Um, Not saying it'll happen. This very well could be a seven and five team, but I think that just the high end talent and perhaps a little bit of the, um, you know, the fact that they are a bit overlooked, counted out when this is one of the most talented uh, rosters in the SEC, if not the country. You know, I, I think that that LSU could surprise some folks, but probably not going to make a run at a, a playoff spot like our rec- our current ranking might suggest. Xavier, what do you think here? Um, LSU of five. I mean, I'm almost afraid to ask you. <laughs> I I mean, I would I would be remiss to mention the fact when I saw LSU at five, I said some very choice words about the numbers. But uh, I, I think that this is a team that is in rebuild mode. Um, now, obviously, the amount of transfers that they brought in will not say that. That won't be necessarily what was indicative of what they've you know brought in in the offseason. However, Jaden Daniels, if, if all things are correct, he's going to have to be a, a Heisman Trophy candidate for this team to get to nine, ten wins this year. I just don't like what I see on their team. John Emery was a five-star, came in, you know, but never could win the job over lesser high school talent. Um, and just hasn't been able to finish out his career there as where, you know, where people thought he might be. John Emery was thought of as maybe one of the best backs coming into the SEC maybe ever when he was coming in to uh, coming into LSU. People were like, yeah, he's going to be the next Leonard Fournette. I'm not kidding when I say that. Um, Keishon Bouti is probably going to be a first-round uh, receiver. He's just that good. 
and it showed that with some pretty mediocre quarterback play. But uh, Malik Neighbors, Jack Beck, their receiving core outside of Booty last year was pretty pedestrian at times. Um, their their uh, offensive line was just bad. It was just bad. Call it what it is. It was not great. They ran the football effectively, but couldn't keep the quarterback upright. Weird mixture. Um, you know, Taylor, Dav- uh, Taylor Davis Price, if I'm not mistaken, had a couple of huge games last year, but also Max Johnson was then running for his life on a consistent basis. Um, I'm not too excited about having a freshman or fresh freshman freshman as my starting left tackle. Not not too excited about that. Um, to be perfectly honest with you, in the SEC, you're gonna be throwing that kid into the fire. Not a fan of that, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, their secondary is all transfers. That's going to either be great or it's going to suck. There's really no other way to put it. That, that, that is either going to gel rather quickly or you're going to be realizing why all of these guys transfer. Um, and and that's, that, that's you know, just me be on, on the pessimistic side for a team that last year just was so underwhelming. And it wasn't just that they were underwhelming. It's that it, it was how pedestrian they were when they were underwhelming. Like, you had games last year that if LSU just had a pulse, they win. You know, like they lose to Alabama 20 to 14. You lose to Arkansas 16 to 13 in overtime. If you just decided to wake up offensively, you would have been, you know, a team that possibly not only is in a bowl game, but, you know, may have even been ranked, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, you know, you, you lose to Auburn, you know, on you know at home last year where, you know, Bo Nix is looking like the second coming of Michael Vick. Um, you know, I just for, for for the times in which they played well, they handled business against, in my opinion, the bottom tiers of the SEC and an AM team that had all but given up on the season by the end of the year, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, we all saw what uh, uh, Zach Calzada posted on his Instagram story after they lost to LSU in that game. That team had been had just given up. So the, coming into this year, I just feel like Brian Kelly is going to there's going to be a bridge year. You know, he's going to get some guys in there that, you know, are going to have some some promising seasons, but nothing to really pull from because when you think about it, if Jane Daniels has a good year, he's out. If Emory Jones or John Emory has a good year, he's gone. If Keishon Bouti has a good season, he's on. So he's out, excuse me. So I, I think that when you look at this roster, I'm not I'm not extremely excited for it at all. Um, their, their, their game against Florida State, I'd love to call a barometer game, but to be perfectly honest with you, if either team wins, it means absolutely nothing to the grand scheme of their seasons. Um, my, for me – their barometer matchup is Auburn, Tennessee, Florida, that kind of three-game window, all against what will be at the time probably unranked teams. Maybe maybe Auburn or maybe Florida's ranked at that point if they beat in Utah, uh, maybe Tennessee too. Uh, but, you know, that is somewhere where, once again, LSU at that at its best has always gone two and one against Auburn, Tennessee, and Florida. Always. They found a way. They've always found a way to beat Auburn. They always find a way to beat Tennessee. And then, or you know, and Florida's always a bogey team for them. So, you know, they but they've always been able to find a way to lead that three game sequence with with a winning record when they've been good. And if they can do that this year, okay, Brian Kelly, you've got something rolling. What I think will happen is they'll get the big the breaks beat off of them by Tennessee and Auburn, and they'll just beat Auburn. I think they'll lose to Florida at Ben Hill Griffith Stadium, so they'll finish that one and two. Uh, I'm, I'm just not a big fan of LSU coming into this year, unless, like I said, Jaden Daniels is the Heisman candidate, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, for, for this team to find anywhere near the success of being ranked five on this list. Number four here, Clemson. Uh, the Tigers started slow and struggled most of the season offensively. They, they lost 
27-17 to eventual ACC champ Pitt to fall to four and three, but ran the table and beat Iowa State in the Cheez It Bowl to finish ten and three on the year. Ten and a half is the DK win total for Clemson. We have them at nine and three, so under that ten and a half. Uh, Nick for Clemson, despite falling short due largely to lackluster QB play in 2021 and two new coordinators in 2022, Clemson is once again the favorite to win the ACC. Will the Tigers get back to the top this season? I think there's a good chance. I know that obviously, you know, Miami and ACC rival is a top 10 team in our current projections. Most people would say that NC State is the biggest threat to Clemson. I, I certainly understand that. Uh, Pitt, as the defending champ, is, um, you know, I don't think the drop-off is going to be huge there. Even Wake Forest, which uh, certainly has uh, a little bit more reason to, to be pessimistic, perhaps, now that Sam Hartman is out for uh, an unknown amount of time. You know, Wake Forest would, would definitely be in the conversation to challenge them. But I do think that Clemson, top to bottom, is probably you know the strongest roster. They rank fourth in roster strength overall for us. One of the very best defenses in the country, top three, pardon me, in uh, defensive roster strength from a team that played at a top five level last year, ranked fourth overall in defensive roster strength and played a big portion of last year without uh, arguably its best defensive player in Brian Brissy. So um, the defensive line for Clemson is, uh, <laughs> uh, I think, the best in the country. Certainly ranks the highest in our uh, D-line unit ratings, played at a number one level in our D-line performance ratings last year. Uh, Brissy, Tyler Davis, and Miles Murphy are all, uh, all ACC performers. There are three to four, excuse me, uh, starters back from last year, two of which aren't even, you know, currently projected as starters. One of them, unfortunately, Xavier Thomas is uh, dealing with an injury that, that might side him, sideline him for a couple of games. But still, I mean, the, the defensive line is as good as it gets in the country. Trenton Simpson at the linebacker uh, level is one of the very best at his position. Uh, Andrew Makuba was a, a true freshman starter last year, played at a high level. Um, I think will, you know, be a, a big piece that they're able to build around in an otherwise rebuilt secondary that though they, you know, played a lot of guys, guys like Sheridan Jones had 400 snaps, Jalen Phillips, RJ Mickens had 300 snaps, still losing you know, certainly some talented players, including a second round draft pick, Andrew Booth. Uh, Mario Goodrich had uh, really an all American caliber season last year, uh, went undrafted, but, you know, big loss. Um, still think that Clemson is in a, a really, really good spot defensively, talent wise. We will see if the loss of Brent Venables uh, plays its way into, to, you know, a level of concern. Clemson did promote from within with both of its new coordinators. So you would expect that things uh, should stay relatively consistent. But when there's a change, sometimes in, in leadership, sometimes that's uh, a good thing. Sometimes there's, you know, really no difference. Sometimes it, it you know, a, a team might have a negative reaction to it. I'm not necessarily expecting that at Clemson. Uh, but if this 
were to go wrong, if Clemson is not, you know, the ACC champion, that's a possible reason why. Offensively, there's some concern. There is a new offensive coordinator. Uh, Tony Elliott moved on, became the head coach at Virginia. Also, you know, as I said, promoted from within. We'll see if DJ Uyunglele can uh, take a step forward. He struggled last year as a starter, but former you know five-star recruit also played quite well in a couple of opportunities as a true freshman. Perhaps somebody new, you know, drawing up plays, calling plays, um, might give him a little bit of a boost. If not, Cade Klubnik. Uh, one of the quarterback recruits they're really, really excited about. Um, I was going to say one of the ones that they're most excited about in a long time. I mean, Clemson has has had a pretty good run of them. Uh, so that might have been an overstatement. But um, somebody who uh, a lot of folks that I respect um, who watch you know, recruiting very closely, watch college football, of course, very closely, uh, seem to think that Klubnik, you know could be the starter by week four, week five. If so, maybe the offense takes a step forward, maybe that's a good thing for Clemson's hopes at, at winning the ACC. If he doesn't wrestle the job away, it's probably because uh, Uyunglele is is playing a good bit better than he did last year, which also would be a good sign. So uh, Will Shipley at running back is is uh, got the potential to be one of the best in the country. Um, they're deep at that position with Kobe Pace and Phil Maffa both back. Uh, the receiving core has dealt with a lot of injuries over the last couple of years has dealt with some injuries, unfortunately already this year with uh, Adam Randall going down with a knee injury that the really talented true freshman uh, in spring sounds like he might actually be able to make it back and, and play some this year. But uh, Troy Stilato also suffered an ACL uh, for him in, in fall camp. He probably will not be back. But the offensive line should be quite good, should be a strength. Jordan McFadden, one of the highest rated, um, highest graded tackles in the country last year, one of four returning starters. Uh, Mason Trotter uh, would be the fifth uh, returning starter. He is not currently uh, expected to play. I'm not exactly sure why, but he is, for an undisclosed reason, uh, expected to be out the majority of this season. Nevertheless, you know, Clemson should be in, in really good shape up front. Offense is obviously the, the main concern. Clemson ranked 114th in passing team performance on the offensive side last year, 76th overall, uh, 58th running. A little bit more help will help. Shipley missed some time last year, the receivers, as I mentioned, but uh, a lot of it comes down to quarterback play as well. Maybe we saw some signs of some improvement towards the end last year when Clemson did get hot, started to play uh, much better, more consistent um, there at the the end of the year. But we will see. It's an open question. After three, you know, likely wins to open the season, uh, including the the ACC opener in Atlanta, but at a neutral side against Georgia Tech, um, getting Wake Forest and NC State early. On the one hand. Going to Wake Forest, Sam Hartman probably won't uh, be there. So that timing-wise maybe works out in, in Clemson's favor. But that home date with NC State, you know, that'll be uh, that'll be the real test. We do have Clemson favored in that game. We have Clemson obviously favored in every game at this point. 
Um, but that by that time, by October 1st, we probably will have a pretty good idea um, as to whether or not this offense uh, will be able to take a, a step and play at a championship level um, because that NCD state defense, as we've discussed, is the most experienced in the country in a lot of measures and uh, in some ways should be one of the best. So um, pretty difficult schedule with three road trips in a four-week span right when uh, the ACC schedule starts to really heat up. But Clemson should have the most, you know, the most talented team every time it steps on the field, should have uh, one of the very best defenses in the country. And if the offense takes, you know, a little bit of a step forward, they'll be certainly the team to beat in the ACC. If the offense takes a, you know, somewhat significant step forward, we might see Clemson back in the playoff and back in uh, the national championship picture. What do you think, Xavier? Do you think Clemson can step up this season? Obviously, like Nick mentioned, offensively looked rather pedestrian last season. Got to get a lot better there uh, if they're going to have any chance, right? Oh, absolutely, which is why I think Klubnik will be the quarterback rather soon. Um, I think this is a team that's not going to be able to play around. This feels very indicative of, of the year where uh, Kelly Bryan had to sit out or they decided to go with Trevor Lawrence eventually in that season as well. I, I just feel like the writing's on the wall for DJ Riongolele, and it's unfortunate because we all decided to learn his name for the last two seasons, and it's not going to work out. Uh, but, you know, hey, at the end of the day, that's the way the crew crumbles. Uh, I just feel like DJ. He's got a five-star brother, though, so. Yeah, I know, right? And, that and, away. Yeah, I also yeah. never mastered it, so, you know, uh, that'll give us more time. So. Yeah, yeah, fair uh, You know, shout out to Big Dave. But, um, yeah, no, I, I think ultimately when you look at this, well, with what Clemson has been able to do when it's been its greatest is had a quarterback that can stretch the field um, and paid Raz of right now, what we saw from DJ last year, he struggled to stretch the field. Uh, now for everything, for all intents and purposes, DJ can still be one heck of a quarterback. Um, he's athletically gifted. Obviously the size profile is there, but his, his biggest issue last year is he just had a problem with being able to really test any second second the Georgia game. There, there felt like there was 11 in the box. That's just how shallow the safeties were playing at some point in that ball game because DJ could not push the field enough. Um, now, granted, also the receivers last year weren't the greatest. Um, you know, I feel like there was a lot of hype coming into the year about the receiving core after the um, after the spring game that they also didn't live up to, and they couldn't figure out what they had at the at the running back position for a while there until Will Shipley ultimately took the job. Offensively, this team just has to figure it out. They figured out offensively; everything else will come together. I, I think I believe that 100. percent That if Clemson's offense finds that next gear, whether whether it's with DJ or with Klubnik, then all bets are off because their defense is still stacked. All those names that you remember, Miles Murphy, uh, Xavier Thomas, Brian Breesy, all those guys are still there. They've just kind of, you know, been quietly doing their job just with a very poor offense. They still finished as one of the better defenses in college football last year, even with what happened, you know, everything that happened last season, right? They, they finished what nine and three last year or, or 10 and three after the bowl. Would. So, you know, you, you still think at the end of the day that this Clemson team can figure it out. Just last year, they ran into a buzzsaw in Georgia in week one, even though that game finished 10, three, you lost to NC state in double overtime, right? So for all the things that you had wrong last year, you were a double overtime game away in a, um, and a, you know, in a loss to an eventual national champion away from 11 and one. So, you know, you, you're in probably an ACC championship berth. So even in a bad year for Clemson, it wasn't 
terrible. It just looked bad because Clemson was winning ball game 17-14 last year as well. So, uh, and that was against Syracuse. Um, So I think when you look at what they have going for them, I think they figured out a lot offensively down the stretch. And I think Klubnik, if he ends up becoming the starter, which once again, they have a stretch there in September, uh, late September, early October. That's going to tell you everything you know need to know about this ball club. They play at Wake Forest September 24th, and they go NC State October 1st at Boston College at Florida State. If at any point in that stretch they have a lackluster ball game do or half, don't be surprised if if uh, if he decides to make a change. Um, he, there's been no reason as to why he wouldn't. Uh, there's been a conversation of whether or not the job was, you know, even da- uh, even DJs to begin with going into the into the fall. He was going to have to earn it. Uh, that was said from Dabo that it was going to be pretty much an open competition uh, between those two guys. DJ, obviously, I think won it in the spring and then he's held on to it in the fall. But do not be surprised if Kate Klubnik is the quarterback by the time that they play both of those ranked ball clubs. I would not be I would not be surprised in the slightest. And if, if DJ can survive that stretch, then he'll be the quarterback the rest of the year. The only question is, is do is, does Dabo wait until the bye week to make that change? Dabo's never been a, a quiet guy when it comes to his changes at quarterback. He's never been scared to do it mid-game. But does he decide to wait until the bye week right before the Notre Dame game to make up a, to make a switch um, to Klubnik, where, where in those last four games they'd be, they'd be playing Notre Dame, Louisville, Miami, and South Carolina? If he waits that long, is that that because DJ has held on to it, or does he just not want to ruffle any feathers and give Kate the uh, you know an extra week to prepare for a Notre Dame team that's going to probably be ranked in the top ten to fifteen at that point in the season, uh, even if their year hasn't gone exactly how they like it to? As far as Clemson's, uh, I'm going to go under. You know, I, I still think this is a ten-win ball club. Um, I think that they'll lose one. I think they'll lose to either NC State. Um, or my, and Miami, um, whether they lose to Notre Dame and Wake Forest is yet to be seen. Obviously, if Sam Hartman's back, that Wake Forest game changes completely. Um, and having to go to Notre Dame is, ne- is never an easy task. But once again, they have a young quarterback at their helm as well, so we don't know what they'll look like at that point. Uh, I do think they'll lose to Miami. I do think they'll lose to NC State. I don't know if they'll find themselves back in the ACC championship game if they haven't figured out the quarterback situation. I'll be perfectly honest with you. Uh, it's, it's in my opinion, it's the sole reason why this team is either a national title contender or sitting at home December 3rd watching the ACC championship game. Like, they figure out the quarterback situation, all bets are off. They've got the talent around them, and the defense is still probably going to be top 10 to top 15. If not, their quarterback situation will hold them down and hold them back. Point blank, plan is All right, we go over to team number three on our list, Georgia. After more than 40 years, the Bulldogs finally won the national championship. The Dogs got revenge for their 41-24 loss to Alabama in the SEC title game with a 33-18 win in Indy. Ten and a half is the DK win total on the Bulldogs this year. We have them at 10 and two, so under that 10 and a half. Uh, Nick, for Georgia, they had a historically good defense in 2020. Uh, in 2021, excuse me, but they rank 120th in defensive returning production and lost eight of their 15 uh, draft picks on D five or first rounders. Uh, the dogs still have elite talent, but are they due to take a step back just because so much starting experience is gone? There, there are some ways in which returning production um is a little bit overrated as a factor if your talent level is high enough. Georgia is, is for the most part, 
in that level. I mean, they were just looking pure uh, recruiting ratings, which we have broken down by position on our FBS team profiles. Um, Georgia has top three talent at running back, wide receiver, tight end, offensive line, linebacker, defensive back, and their D-line ranks sixth. Uh, With a former walk-on at quarterback, uh, they still have top 20 talent at that position. So Georgia is a team that, you know, like Alabama year after year, like Ohio State year after year, uh, might rank among the very you know, bottom in uh, returning production numbers, especially if it's, you know, just on one side of the ball. Um, But we still don't expect a big, big drop off. That said, last year's Georgia defense, I mean, you said historic. I mean, it was one of the best statistical seasons uh, that we've seen in this current era of college football. Um, You know, that, what was it, 2011 Alabama team? Uh, a lot of the uh, advanced numbers think is one of the best in, in modern history or, or maybe the best in modern history. And this Georgia team was right there with it, if not better. Um, and so many of those major impact players are gone. Five first rounders, the first overall pick, um, you know, just counting up the starters. It's, it's all three at the defensive line. It's half the linebackers, half the secondary. That's a lot to replace. And yes, the the level of talent uh, of the players who are assuming those roles is great. Um, there's a reason, you know, we weight talent rankings uh, with experience. And, you know, Georgia, because the the lack of experience, especially on the defensive side of the ball, um, those roster strength numbers get downgraded a little bit to where, uh, yes, yeah, still excellent, excellent players, tons of talent, but defensively Georgia ranks 13th in roster strength on offense. They're ninth overall, they're eighth, absolutely capable of being, um, you know, SEC East champs capable of making a run to another conference title, uh, to a, uh, you know, playoff spot. But I think that the margin for error um, has gotten considerably tighter because there's so many new faces and and so many key roles. Um, I do think that offensively, you know, this team did not max out last year. And that's somewhat remarkable because Georgia actually ranks second in our offensive team performance numbers. Um, They rank third in uh, the passing attack, which, you know, most people probably would not expect, you know, Stetson Bennett national championship winning quarterback, uh, full hero, certainly, but, uh, still, you know, even within the fan base, you hear some rumblings that, uh, maybe there's a more talented and, and better, uh, option on the roster. Bennett does a great job, gets Georgia in the right play and the coaching staff trusts him. And, you know, he had an excellent, excellent year last year from an efficiency standpoint, which is where a lot of those team performance numbers come from. Uh, I mean, you know, they were top five in in yards per pass attempt. Uh, They were fourth in success rate, seventh in EPA per play, second in points per drive. So um, getting a quarterback back who led the team, you know, 
uh, to a national championship one, but also to a really, really successful uh, season statistically is big. The running back group, though, you know, have to replace a couple of draft picks uh, at that position is in good hands. Kendall Milton, Kenny McIntosh uh, seem to be a really solid one-two duo. There's some depth there with Dejan Edwards and Brandon Robinson, or excuse me, Branson Robinson, the true freshman. Unfortunately, another true freshman who uh, wasn't as highly rated but has gotten a lot of buzz lately. Um, Andrew Paul suffered an ACL and will be out the year. But still, you know, this this Georgia uh, rushing attack should be decent. It was a top 40 unit last season. Um, but the passing attack, I think, is is got an op, you know, has a chance to be just as good, maybe, pardon me, uh, maybe even a little bit better. Um, you know about the tight ends. You know, Brock Bowers had such a huge year last year. Darnell Washington, you know, certainly impressed as a blocker, can do even more as a receiver. Eric Gilbert is back after missing all of last season. He was a beast in the spring game. Um, there's experience in the receiving room. Adani Mitchell's back. Lod McConkie kind of surprised a lot of folks last year. Uh, he returns. Kyrus Jackson, Marcus Roseby, Jack Saint, um, Dominic Blaylock, you, you know, hopefully he's back and, and fully healthy for the first time in a while. They recruited, again, really, really well at both receiver and tight end. So there's the potential for, you know, a playmaker, maybe not a George Pickens, who they were able to get by without for a large uh, chunk of last year. But still, you know, there's talent there. The offensive line has to replace a couple of starters, a couple of draft picks, uh, but there's some around the program who seem to think that this unit is um, perhaps better than last year's, which is saying something since they finished number two in our O-line performance numbers. All that said, and the fact that there's really no weak spot on the roster other maybe than a little bit of experience, it is really, really hard to finish, uh, you know, to follow up, I should say, a national championship winning season, one of the very best in, you know, program history with another season quite at that level. The schedule sets up really well. If Georgia can get by Oregon in week one, neutral site matchup, you know, in, in name only, really, that game's going to be in Atlanta. Then there is little reason to think that Georgia won't win the SEC East, won't be a heavy favorite in the rest of its games. The over 10 and a half, I mean, there's a reason that the, it, it it's like minus 200 or something like a hundred dollar bet would win you $50. The expectations for Georgia to get through this schedule with 11 wins are uh, extremely high. However, sometimes when a team wins a national championship or reaches new heights, especially if there's a lot of turnover in, uh, you know, leadership on uh, inside the locker room, things like that. Sometimes they have the, uh, uh, you know, the potential to take the foot off the gas pedal a little bit, maybe lose a game or two that they probably shouldn't. And so with that in mind, not that I expect Georgia to be a, a you know, much worse team or a less talented team. Um, I am, I think, uh, kind of pleased that we're actually on the under here. 
Georgia very, very may well win 11 games, get back to the playoff. Uh, but I could also see, or, you know, when we talked about Mississippi State a couple of weeks ago, I could see that as a, a trap game right before that trip to Kentucky. Georgia, I think, legitimately could be in trouble in that game. Uh, there have been, you know, periods not in, in super recent history, but there have been periods at Georgia where South Carolina was always kind of a, a thorn in the side. That's a talented team. Road trip, first, you know, pure uh, road game in mid-September. That's a little bit of a tricky matchup. Um, you know, Florida at a neutral site, even though they've got some uh, turnover, that's always a, a tough test that you you cannot guarantee a win there. Tennessee is a team on the rise. Kentucky, some folks think, you know, could win the SEC East. So there are some potential stumbling blocks. I don't necessarily expect Georgia to, to fall off like LSU did and you know from 2019 to 2020. That just doesn't seem very likely. However, it's, it's difficult for teams to follow up a national championship with another elite level season especially when they have to replace 15 draft picks, um, eight of them on the defensive side of the ball, five of them first rounders. That's just so much uh, talent that you've got to replace. It's a hit to the depth. You know, I, I still think that this Georgia team is absolutely a playoff contender, maybe even national championship contender, uh, but it would not surprise me in the, in the slightest if they end up in the you know 10 and two range in the regular season. Xavier, what are your thoughts for the Bulldogs this year? Obviously, a ton to replace here, but elite-level talent kind of turning into uh, you don't ever want to put a team into Bama's category, right? But it, it looks like with the recruiting class and the recent success, if anyone has a shot, it's the dog. So what do you think about uh, Georgia for 2022? It's going to be a yeah, – let's see. This, this Georgia team is going to be weird for the thing that, for a lot of Georgia fans because I feel like offense is going to be what, you know, this team leans on. You not only got, you know, a returning quarterback in Stetson Bennett, who I think will, be, will look to be more of a focal point of the offense this year. Um, you still return Kenny McIntosh and Kendall Milton, but obviously you lose Amir White, you lose James Cook. So those, you know, replacing those, those guys, are good. it's not going to be difficult necessarily, but it's also going to be a challenge in some ways, um, especially James Cook coming out the backfield. Kenny McIntosh has some big shoes to fill in that regard. But on the flip side, you also have the best tight end room in college football. You know, you fought, fought, you know, Brock Bowers probably would have been a top 15 pick last year if he was, if he was eligible for the draft. Eric Gilbert has been arguably, you know, was arguably the best tight end prospect to come out of high school football in a very long time when he went to LSU. He looks poised to play, and everybody saw him in the spring game pretty much go bonkers. And then you still have Darnell Washington, which, you know, when he came out of high school as, you know, a six, seven, you know, almost, he's almost the size of a left tackle, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, you know, you know, when he moves, he's a freight train. So you've got three different ways to attack offenses in that regard. You also bring back out of nine Mitchell, Lad McConkey is going to be, you know, huge Arian Smith comes back from injury. He was somebody who started to hit the ground running last year uh, before ultimately getting hurt. And he's a speedster. Kiaris Jackson is there back for what feels like his seventh year. You know, he's been there for what it feels like forever. Um, you know, he's going to be obviously a safe pair of hands. So offensively, you really think that this team takes the next step. Also, the reason for that is their offensive line last year, rather young. You, you know, you staved off, you know, Amarius Mims leaving um, for, uh, 
you know, leaving in the transfer portal. You bring back Broderick Jones at left tackle. Uh, Van Pran was huge last year, but he's a redshirt sophomore. Tate Ratledge is a redshirt sophomore. So, you know, your, your offensive line that was relatively young last year in a lot of, in a lot of ways comes back and look, is going to look a lot better now with another year under their belt. Obviously, where everybody looks forward, looks towards is the defense. Will they be able to put that much pressure on quarterbacks again? Let me answer that quickly. No, no. You don't have a, you know, you don't have a Jordan Davis, you know, to, to do that. Your linebacker room doesn't feature Nicobe Dean, uh, Channing Tindall, uh, Trayvon Walker, right? You just don't have necessarily some of those freaks that you had last year. You still have really good players. Jalen Carter will probably be a top five pick this year, if not top seven. Nolan Smith still, you know, got to finish the last sack in the national championship game and is still extremely productive and was a huge gift for them uh, to come back this year. Robert Beal is a guy who's played, uh, you know, a, lot, a ton of minutes in his time at Georgia and isn't expected to take that next step, you know, at, at the same position. But the secondary. Secondary has to be better this year. Um, they have to be more, they have to be less big play proof or more big play proof than they were last year. They were great in the, in the intermediate. They were, you know, re, you know, really, really good in the short game. They have to be better at giving and not giving away as many big plays. Keely Ringo, Christopher Smith, you know, William Poole, those guys have to do a better job of keeping everybody in front of them because you're going to have to do that more than when you had a, a you know, a, a defensive front last year that just got to the quarterback pretty much at will where you could, you know, there were games that I talked about just when we talked about Tennessee, you know, a day, um, a podcast ago, Tennessee has some opportunities in that game. Arkansas has some opportunities in their game. Kentucky has some opportunities and obviously Alabama took, you know, took uh, care of those opportunities in their matchup um, in the SEC championship game. You've got to do better keeping some of those big plays away. And if you can do that, then, uh, then that defensive front will grow into the year. Uh, Zion Logue, uh, Tyrion Ingram uh, Dawkins, they'll grow into the season as it progresses. Maybe you'll even see some, some play from, you know, uh, Chaz or uh, Marvin Jones Jr. Who was obviously a recruit this year um, as well. When you look at their schedule, if they get through Oregon with a win, all bets are off for this team not being undefeated until the bye week. You know, I think they handle Auburn. Auburn's a team that they have had pretty good success with um, in my lifetime, really. Uh, but most definitely in the last decade. Um, and, and you look at the rest of the schedule, Sanford at South Carolina is going to be a weird one. It's going to be a weird one. It absolutely is. Um, you know, South Carolina, like Nick said, is go has given us troubles in the past, but also is a team that we've been able, you know, beat us two years ago at home, you know, with a platoon swap at quarterback at that year, you know. So playing Missouri, playing Auburn at home is a big one for us. I think the, the home cooking is going to be necessary in some of these matchups. That's why I love Tennessee being at home this year. Uh, you know, so I think this is a team that wins 11 games. I'm trying to find the loss that they have. I think – if you're pointing towards anything, it's either they don't show up against Florida and Jacksonville or Tennessee just really punches them in the mouth and they have no answer for it um, in the secondary. Other than that, Kentucky is a team I'm I'm like worried about, but, but Kentucky's style matches really well with Georgia. They're not a team that loves to stretch the field. They run the football a ton. Georgia's really good against the run. It's, all, it's the teams that like to stretch the field that give me pause. And the only reason why I don't have pause against Oregon is because we're playing Bo Nix. That's really it. Like, if Oregon has some other quarterback, I would be a little bit more scared. I just think Georgia has Bo Nix's number more than so than they have Oregon's number. Uh, so I, I think regardless of what jersey he's wearing, when Georgia sees Bo Nix, they start licking their chops. I have them going over. I think they're an 11-1 ball club. I think they're back in the SEC championship game. Am I saying that they're a national championship contender? I am not saying that just yet. I got to see Stetson Bennett 
be better than he was last year for me to think that this is a team that can get close to a national championship this year. All right, let's go over to team number two on the list, and it is Alabama in a self-described rebuilding year. Alabama won the SEC title and made it uh, to the national title game. The Crimson Tide finished 13-2 and with losses to AM and Georgia only. Ten and a half is their win total. We have them at 10-2, and two, so officially under the ten and a half. Uh, Nick, the Crimson Tide have had the most talented roster in the country with Heisman winner Bryce Young, pass rusher Will Anderson, who's probably going to be the number one non-QB pick, an elite recruiting class, and impact transfers. Alabama is almost the universal number one team out there. Why are we different? I have asked myself that. Uh, also, <laughs> because well, Austin Turner lost sleep about it too. You so. know, it, it, it's it's uh, it was a surprise. Uh, Alabama, you know, the the first time we ran the new numbers was number one. Didn't expect anything uh, else, but you know, there there just there were a couple of other updates that uh, we were able to put in uh, to the mix. Completely rebuilt our stats only model uh which takes into account the last three years weighted um for the team the head coach and the play callers on both sides i would have expected alabama to be a clear number one in that as well uh but they were actually third um so that i think you know kind of broke the tie so to speak with with ohio state uh but you know, it, it's still technically, uh, you know, Alabama's number two, but really they're co-number ones. Um, Alabama and Ohio State would be, uh, Ohio State right now would be about a third of a point favorite on a neutral field against Alabama. Um, I would certainly expect if they play in a national championship game that Alabama will be incredibly well prepared and, and you know, might actually personally think that they uh, probably would win that game. But if I'm trying to think of ways in which uh, our projection is correct and Alabama is the second best team in the country and not a clear number one, uh, part of it is this team struggled a little bit running the football last year. Uh, you know, Brian Robinson had great numbers, but a lot of the uh, you know more advanced stats that go into our team performance ratings didn't, didn't quite work out in, in Alabama's favor. Uh, they ranked 56th in rushing offensive team performance. Part of that was an offensive line that didn't quite play up to the level that we're used to for a unit that is, you know, consistently uh, puts out five-star offensive linemen. They ranked 45th in our O-line performance ratings last season, and that's with a uh, left tackle who was the seventh overall pick and a right tackle who started 20 games in his career, both of whom are, are you know, no longer on the roster. So the offensive line, it's, it's not a major weak spot, uh, you know, talent wise, pure talent there. It's the best in the country in our uh, position strength numbers, which again, weights experience and, and career production, they rank 12th. You know, that's still a lot. There are a lot of teams that wish they had the 12th best uh, offensive line in the country. For Alabama, it's a, a little bit of a step back from what they're used to. 
on the defensive side of the ball, I mean, really, there are no questions. This this Alabama defense should be uh, the Georgia defense from last year. I mean, we we may be talking about one of the very best uh, in recent memory. Last season, they were number one against the run already. But if there was an area for improvement, it was defending the pass. Again, you know, 18th in the country is is not a uh, major embarrassment for most teams. But Alabama ranked 18th in defensive team performance against the pass last season. Their secondary was burnt at times. Um, not, you know, super often. They still had multiple All-SEC players. They still had... Um, you know, a corner who was drafted in the fourth round by the Baltimore Ravens. It, it's an area where they could stand to improve a little bit. And you mentioned some impact transfers. One of those is Eli Ricks, who has not guaranteed himself a, a starting job yet. Uh, Kool-Aid McKinstry and Kyrie Jackson, who has been a little bit banged up, um, seem to to have an edge at, at the top two corner position so far in uh, fall camp, but Ricks has elite talent um, and should help, you know, solidify that unit with a you know pair of safeties and a, a nickelback, all of whom are returning as full-time starters, Jordan Battle, DeMarco Hellams, and Malachi Moore, respectively. Shouldn't be a, a major issue, but based on last year's results and, and based on, you know, a little bit of injury concern, Ricks also had a, a legal issue, it's it's a slight um, question mark. It's not a you know weak spot. It's not a glaring uh, area that opponents are going to be able to attack. But it's just not quite the elite unit that we're used to seeing. So if Alabama takes a step forward in that secondary, then it certainly can be the best defense in the country, maybe one of the best defenses in recent memory. If their offensive line, you know, they did bring in Tyler Steen, who is a 30-game starter at Vanderbilt, uh, should be the uh, left tackle for them this year. The interior returns intact. Uh, At right tackle, you would expect Damian George or Kendall Randolph, who plays a lot of, you know, extra linemen, uh, a big tight end at times, but has played some right tackle as well. You would expect that that starting unit is going to be pretty good. You would think that with all the five stars on the uh, roster as well, you know, Alabama has rolled in a a true freshman starter on occasion. That could happen this year. Sounds like it might actually happen in the receiving core. There's a lot of uh, buzz right now about Kobe Prentiss um, potentially being a a, player who – Gets a lot of playing time, a lot of snaps early, especially with Tyler Harrell, a little bit banged up. JoJo Earl expected to miss, you know, six to eight weeks with a foot injury. Um, but then, you know, everywhere else. I mean, they, they have the Heisman Trophy winner coming back, Bryce Young, right? They have, like you mentioned, Will Anderson, one of the best pass rushers I remember seeing uh, in, in college football and in, in at least the you know last decade or so. Jameer Gibbs, transfer from Georgia Tech, is maybe my favorite uh, college football player. You know, Jermaine Burton transferred in from Georgia. Harrell is is a huge, uh, big play receiver with elite speed. Um, the way that Alabama has rounded out its roster with some elite free agent talent, 
transfer portal guys in addition to those consistent number one or very rarely number two recruiting classes. I understand why so many people think that this is the team to beat and is a clear favorite to win the national championship. Another, you know, added number that or added factor that we can't quite quantify is Alabama usually uh, does pretty well when there's a little bit of a revenge factor and they came up short in the national championship game last year. There's, you know, seems to me a, a pretty decent track record of when that happens, the next year's team, especially if it's, uh, you know, relatively healthy and, and uh, stacked with talent, pretty experienced. And this Alabama team is relatively experienced. Top 50 returning production is, is somewhat high uh, for them in, in, you know, my recent memory. They, they have a tendency to, to take things up a notch, and, and that could be the case this year. That said, as we'll talk about here in just a minute, Ohio State is, I think, just as good in a lot of ways. So we'll see. Hopefully both teams stay healthy. Hopefully uh, we get to see this Alabama team at its best. Um, An undefeated regular season is absolutely possible. Um, We have them as at least a nine-point favorite in every game during the regular season. But also, funny things happen in college football sometimes. And, you know, hopefully uh, the injury issues Alabama's already had won't continue into the regular season. But if it does, if a couple of the transfers don't quite work out, if the offensive line uh, doesn't you know, play at a, a top 15 or better level, if the secondary doesn't fix a couple of its weak spots from last year, we saw last season Alabama was susceptible. I mean, they lost to Texas A&M. They you know, maybe should have lost to Auburn, uh, played much closer than anybody would have expected against LSU and, and Florida, some others. Um, they were, they were a beatable team last year. So if they don't fix a couple of those things, then, you know, the trip to Tennessee, the home game against A&M, uh, maybe even that trip to Texas, who our numbers seem to suggest is a top 10 team, two regular season losses is not crazy. Um, I don't think it's likely. I probably just, you know, for, for, uh, my own peace of mind would rather we were over the 10 and a half, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's possible that, that this team trips up a little bit too. There are some areas that are less than perfect. Um, and so the more I you know dug into it, the less I hated that Alabama wasn't our clear number one, probably still should be, you know, considered the team to beat for the national championship though. What do you think, Xavier? Uh, Bama here at number two. Uh, do you have them at two, or do you think they probably should still be number one, bringing back the number one defensive player and the Heisman Trophy champ? You know, I honestly can't really say. Like, I, I Ohio State lost what made them great in some ways at the receiving position, but they bring back so many receivers. Alabama brings back Will Anderson and Bryce Young, but, you know, also brought in Eli Ricks. But that secondary is still a major concern for me. I know Nick wasn't too concerned about the defense. I am. That secondary looked terrible against Georgia. Like, let's just have it out. It wasn't a great afternoon, great night for them. Um, Outside of really Jordan Battle, nobody, you know, and and Brian Branch with the the fumble recovery situation um, for the 
corners, it wasn't a great afternoon, a great night. Uh, I feel like they weren't healthy, one, obviously. But two, I just felt like they, they, they weren't in position like they typically are. Like, Bama doesn't get beat on big plays a ton. And that Georgia offense, everything they hit that night that actually worked was, for the most part, big plays. Um, same thing when it gets AM. That secondary just wasn't there, right? You know, it took AM to win in a shootout to win that ball game, but that means a shootout incurred. Um, I, I just don't know what I'm gonna get out of that secondary game in and game out. Kool-Aid McKinstry has a lot to show me this year. That and it's mostly just the corners. I love Jordan Battle. I think Brian Branch takes a bit of a step this year. Uh DeMarco Helms is is a is a bit of a question mark for me as well. So that secondary has to show me more from a from from you know stopping the pass when they're playing good passing teams. And that's something that Alabama kind of got away with last year. They didn't play a ton of explosive ball clubs last year. Um, you know, and I feel like the couple that they did showed you that they could, you know, Arkansas, Arkansas put up 35 points against them. Arkansas is not a great passing team as well. Um, you know, uh, like I said, Georgia had a pretty good game against them or had a really good game against them in the, in the uh, national championship game, but also like even against Cincinnati, their their defense was great against you know or their offense was really good against uh, running the football but passing the football they weren't great so I feel like last year they had to kind of figure themselves every time they went into a ball game and they just had to use uh, what they had coming into this year offensively I think they're more well well rounded Jameer Gibbs obviously is a big factor of that Jameer Gibbs comes in probably. Outside of B. John Robinson is probably the second or third best back in college football, in my opinion. Um, just what he was able to do at Tech can't go understated. They added Jermaine Burton, which I think is going to be good because I think they needed a little bit more senior-laden uh, guy in their receiving core. Yeah, they, they brought, you know, Ja'Cory Brooks is back. But I just felt receiving-wise, they were rather young. Um, and that's not something that I've always been able to say at them. I kind of feel like that for like four or five years, they were just like churning out another junior and senior combo that was just going to really be really good. I didn't see that coming into this year. So Jermaine Burton being uh, added to that team is huge. Um, I think Bryce Young is going to have to do a really good job this year. He doesn't have the names. He just doesn't. It's going to be much like the national championship game all over again. He doesn't have those quote unquote guys that he's going to be able to go to play after play that he just knows for a fact until, you know, Ja'Cory uh, Brooks and, and Treshawn Holden um, and Jermaine Burton separate themselves. He doesn't necessarily have that guy coming into the year like last year, like, you know, in previous years where, you know, Tua had, uh, you know, uh, Devontae Smith and Mac Jones had Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddle and all those guys. You had players that you knew just coming into the year were going to be great. With all that being said, I still think this team wins bare minimum 11 games. Uh, you look at their schedule, I think they beat Texas and Austin. Um, and, and really, I think just the West is not as good as it has been in years past. Ole Miss isn't as good. LSU is not as good. And, yes, A&M will be preseason ranked high, but we all know what I said in earlier earlier podcasts. I think A&M is on my fraud watch to begin the year already, and so I'm not really high on them, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, so I think – and then, like I said, I think this is going to be uh, an opportunity for Saban to get his give back from that whole you know situation with Jimbo and it's in Tuscaloosa. So give me Bama all the way. Um, the only game I really have them losing quote unquote, I think maybe either at Tennessee or at Arkansas. Uh, I think Tennessee has the kind of offense that can stay with uh, Alabama and can really hurt that secondary and Arkansas almost beat them last year. <laughs> you know, Arkansas was right there on, you know, uh, was right there on the cusp of beating them last season. So would it be surprising if they were able to get over the hump with them being at home uh, this year, Arkansas, that is. So Alabama should, all you know, their, their expectation every year is to go undefeated. They have the talent to do so. 
I just this, there's more holes in this team than maybe there has been in previous years. Uh, you know, I think their offensive line is going to be good. I think missing Evan Neal is actually going to hurt them. Um, I'm excited to see what Dallas Turner is able to do this year. But outside of Will Anderson on that front, him and DJ Dell are kind of the only like guarantees on that front on that front for me, um, just because I, I think that, you know, even in last year's team for Darian Mathis was, you know, kind of the, the only guy on that uh, front four that got, I believe that got drafted high. Um, so I, I'm not all that, I'm not too terribly high on all the talent that Alabama has this year as I have been in years past, where I feel like, you know, in years past, they just had guys, they had dudes everywhere, not this season. Uh, but I still think it's a team that bare minimum goes 10 and two, you know, um, 11 and one should be, should be their record, but tending to could be something that ends up happening. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go with the I'm gonna go with the over because I feel like this is I feel like Saban's gonna twist this year again and go that this was a bridge year, this was another building year for us. We were rebuilding last year, this year we were building, and I feel like you know ultimately it's gonna be one of those years where Saban has to do a pretty good press job to, to kind of keep people from trying to, to you know lowball them. I can see the typical Saban, you know, press conference week five, week six of the year, which is like, hey, these young guys are doing all they can and you guys are just not giving them the credit that they deserve. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, Saban, we heard you say the same thing last year and the same thing three years ago and so on and so forth. All right. The number one overall is, of course, Ohio State. Ohio State was uh, upset at home by Oregon and fell to Michigan for the first time in a long time last year. Even with the Rose Rose Bowl win over Utah, the Buckeyes 11 and two record felt like a disappointment to many. Uh, DK has got them at 10 and a half wins. We have them at 11 and one. So one of the two teams were over the 10 and a half on is Ohio State. Nick, Ohio State led by CJ Stroud, Travion Henderson and Jackson Smith and Jigba. Uh, they could have the best offense in the country. Again, will the defense be good enough under new defensive coordinator Jim Knowles to win it all? in 2022 that's the hope i guess uh i mean with them being our number one team and and like i mentioned it's not because we're trying to be different it's just that sort of the way that the the numbers shake out i think that jim knowles if ohio state really is a uh you know gonna go toe-to-toe with alabama in a national championship game as almost everybody in the world thinks is the most likely in result um i think that Knowles will have a big uh you know will be a big reason why ohio state was easily the best offense in the country last year number one in offensive team performance overall number one in passing offense uh for sure top 30 rushing game but still you know trayvon henderson one of the best running backs in college football announced his presence immediately as a true freshman um they have to replace a couple of first-round pick wide receivers, which normally is uh, something you just can't overcome. Yet, wide receiver and tight end uh, Ohio State group ranks number one in our roster strength uh, unit ratings. So, you know, the, the drop-off is not huge, at least when you're talking comparatively. Jackson Smith and Jigba uh, looks like an All-American uh, had a huge Rose Bowl, but still was, you know, having a, a really, really solid sophomore year uh, as well. Marvin Harrison Jr. looks like the next great, you know, number two receiver at Ohio State. And then Julian Fleming and Amika Agbuka 
our former five stars who are both, uh, you know, kind of battling it out for a, a starting role, it sounds like, but both of, of which are, are, you know, have sky high potential. And this Ohio State receiving group, you know, Brian Hartline is, is uh, almost, uh, you know, you don't hear of very many position coaches in college football that the average fan could probably name. And you might be able to name Hartline, the, the wide receiver coach at, at Ohio State, just because his track record as a recruiter uh, and, you know, taking really, really talented players and helping them become All-Americans and first round picks is is uh, just sort of the norm there right now. So C.J. Stroud, one of the Heisman favorites, um, and I think that's absolutely warranted, had a great year last year. There were some concerns early on. You know, he's a little banged up, missed the Akron game, uh, didn't play super great against Oregon. Um, good passing numbers, you know, all year. But uh, there was some concern as to whether or not he'd be able to hold off, uh, if not Kyle McCord, Quinn Ewers, right, who was the, the hotshot uh, five-star on the roster last year. But Stroud was able to, to hold off those guys and, and play – at a Heisman finalist level uh, last season. And, um, you know, I would expect that though you can't guarantee somebody's going to play at, at that elite level uh, again, the odds are better than not that, that CJ Stroud is going to be one of the best uh, quarterbacks in college football, somewhat similar to Alabama. The offensive line, you know, is not perfect is not the best of the best, uh, does have to replace a couple of NFL draft picks, even though Paris Johnson Jr. is, you know, perhaps uh, a future first rounder. Maybe Dewan Jones is as well. Those are their two uh, bookends. You know, Johnson was an All Big Ten performer last year. There's a little bit of, of, uh, I guess, a, a bit of a question. I mean, this is the most talented offensive line in the country according to our numbers. It's the most talented everything basically at Ohio state uh, quarterback receiver offensive line, the running back group is number four and probably would be higher if, if Henderson were uh, a junior, he just hasn't maxed out his individual rating yet. But, you know, if you're looking for a weak spot, maybe it's a little bit of, you know, inexperience and depth on the offensive line, but look at the defense. As we mentioned, Jim Knowles, you know, has been charged with uh, improving a unit that struggled at times, was a little too simple, too easy to attack earlier in the year. They made a coordinator change, played a little bit better, but still, you know, team performance ratings at uh, 39 overall defensively, 52 against the pass, 35 against the run. That's just not going to cut it. The talent, just like on offense, is at, you know, among the highest in college football. Pure talent, just talking about, you know, 247 ratings and, and rivals ratings on average at every position group is top five in the country. The experience adjusted and, and production adjusted numbers, um, you know, not quite that high. Should be a top five defense in terms of talent. They played at a top 10 level last year. Um, so that should be, you know, arguably the strength of this defense. The linebacker core, even though both uh, full-time starters return. They're actually sounds like both came out as uh, projected backups after fall camp. Cody Simon and uh, Tarada Mitchell look like 
they might be losing out on their starting spots to Steel Chambers and Tommy Eichberg. Uh, Eichenberg, excuse me. Um, so, you know, that that unit doesn't stack up as well as elite in our uh, position strength numbers. It's 39th overall. But the secondary, which was a little bit of a little bit of a problem area last year, um, at least talent wise, looks like a top 10 unit. Ronnie Hickman is back after an all Big Ten caliber season. Denzel Burke was a, a 13 game starter as a true freshman at corner last year. They brought in Tanner McAllister, uh, who looks like he's going to be the starting nickelback. He actually followed Knowles from Oklahoma State to Ohio State. That, I think, is is only going to help, um, you know, with a, a starter, likely starter, to uh, come in and help teach the new system uh, to his new teammates. And that particular position group uh, has dealt with some injuries has been a little banged up. The depth is not quite what you want, but it seems to me like there's the potential that they get a little bit better in that secondary than they were last year and at least should play more consistent week in and week out. So Ohio State is a team without a major weakness. Uh, any of the potential weaknesses that they've got, I think, you know, with the defensive coaching change, I think we could certainly see improvement at linebacker to see improvement in the secondary, uh, the pass rush as well. I think Ohio state is going to, you know, if, if they lose a game in the regular season, uh, it's, it's going to be a big time upset. They are a two touchdown favorite in every game in our projections. That includes a trip to Penn state that includes uh, Michigan at home at the end of the year. You know, they're more than a two touchdown favorite against Notre Dame in week one. This is a schedule that sets up really well, an incredibly, incredibly talented team. Um, and in my opinion, the biggest challenger to Alabama and the way our projections see it, a slight favorite over Alabama on our neutral field. Xavier, what do you think, uh, Ohio State being ranked number one? Do you, do you like that? I mean, it seems like, you know, the easiest bet to make in terms of a national title this year would be Ohio state versus Bama. So uh, either way, one, two, I think makes sense, but Ohio state at one, do you like it or do you disagree? Uh, I think it's, you're picking at hairs at that point. You're really like legitimately nitpicking as much as possible. Um, offensively. I think both of these teams compare very similarly. Uh, I'm extremely excited to watch what they're able to do on the ground. Uh, Trayvon Henderson coming back is, is great. Um, but, and, you know, receiving core wise, I think, you know, that's where the separation is. Ohio State has a better receiving core than what Bama is going to be trotting out this year. Uh, Julian Fleming for all intents and purposes could, could be the best receiver in his receiving core. Um, and, you know, was fourth and fifth on the depth chart last year. Uh, Marvin Harrison Jr. has already, you know, started making highlights before the season's even started. And obviously we know as much as we need to know about Jackson Smith and Jigba. He led the team in passing and receiving yards last year, and he wasn't the first-round draft picks uh, that they had. So um, the thing for me with this team is can they defensively be more dominant than what they were last year? And Nick alluded to them bringing in, you know, um, you know extra help coaching-wise to see if that could happen. But I felt like Ohio State last year, just wasn't as dominant defensively as I've seen in years past. I feel like in a lot of their games, their offense was just otherworldly and their defense was cool. Like that's kind of, you know, especially in the big games last year, right? 
You know, um, they, they obviously lose to Oregon early in the year. Uh, you know, they beat Penn State, but it's 33-24, not a, not a, you know, not a barn burner. They gave up 32 points to Purdue, even though they beat them by more than 20. They gave up 42 to a Michigan team that offensively wasn't all that, to be honest. Uh, they gave up 45 to Utah. They gave up 31 to Purdue. Just, you know, you know, yes, obviously there's some, you know, dominant performances there against like Akron, Rutgers, Maryland. But it felt like any team that, you know, had somewhat of a semblance of offense last year, they could get to, you know, Ohio State's defense in some ways. Um, I'm not saying that, that you know, that it's going to turn into any upsets this year, but it was a little bit, you know, I think it was a little bit more concerning in that in game one where Minnesota really before Ibrahim gets hurt is going toe-to-toe with, you know, Ohio State pretty much the entire time. Uh, obviously, Muhammad Ibrahim goes down. Ohio State wins again 45-31. to But that game was a lot closer than the score would indicate, uh, you know, throughout that ball game. This year, they're, I just expect that their offense to carry them again. Defensively, I don't feel terrified by a ton of the names on their defense. Like, there's no Bosa's walking around, right? There's not even a Jeff Okuda in the secondary for me to be like, oh, well, you know, you can't throw it to his side. Um, I just feel like, you know, outside of really Zach, really, Zach Harrison is the only one for me that I'm like, okay, this is a guy who could probably be the, you know, the uh, top five pick if he has the kind of year that, you know, is, is possibly expected of him. And, you know, some of the names that are behind him actually are, are some of the ones I'm excited to see. You're Jack Sawyers, who have, you know, been, you know, talked about over, you know, not Ignazium at this point about how good that guy has been. But when you look at them going forward this year, obviously Ohio State has it. You know, I hate these games at the beginning of the year for Ohio State. Their, their first game of the season always seems like these daunting tasks, and then they go in there and just handle business. Typically, it's against like an Indiana. This year is going to be Notre Dame. You know, it's going to come in with all that hype. Then they're probably going to win the game like 44, you know, 27. Um, you know, the, the game against Wisconsin, if on the road, I'd be feeling a little bit less excited or less uh, bullish about it if I was Ohio State at East Lansing. We'll see what Peyton Thorne looks like at, at that point. And then once again, I, you've got to circle the Michigan game, not only just because Michigan beat them last year, but because I think, you know, if we're going to see that, that you know, that vaunted defense it's going to have to be against Michigan because I think Michigan is probably the best offense that they'll play this year. I don't think I'm going on too far of a limb to say that. Um, and I think, you know, the only other game that I'm probably circling is at, is at Penn State. Penn State just kind of gives them a tough time. Doesn't necessarily mean they're going to lose, but Penn State always seem, seems to play Ohio State pretty well. Um, it typically comes down to the fourth quarter where Penn State just doesn't have the talent to kind of finish the, uh, to get to the finish line. But that's a game, once again, that if this defense hasn't figured it out, Penn State's going to be able to to abuse that with their running game. Um, so this team should go eleven and one. So the over is still in play. Um, I, I think that this will be one of those years, though, where, where we're not looking at, at, at a bona fide number one overall team. And I know that's going to sound weird, but I don't think we will. I think there's going to be maybe three teams in a tier system this year. Where in the regular season last year, I feel like Georgia was by far and away the number one team in the country uh, for for everybody. I feel like this year we're going to have like a sandwich at the top. It's going to be three teams, three teams, three teams, and we're going to almost be able to tear it off in that way. Where I just don't feel like anybody's going to like legitimately separate themselves. For like eight to ten weeks, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, um, I would not be surprised if you know the, the number one team in the country kind of flip flops throughout the season uh, this year. So, I think Ohio State goes eleven and one. There's, I think there's going to be a loss in there somewhere, whether it's Michigan, whether it's at Michigan State. And heck, if, if Wisconsin actually does the things we talked about in the podcast, Wisconsin is going to be a much diff- more difficult game than what I kind of glossed over. But if Graham Mertz is actually the quarterback that we've been waiting for Graham Mertz to be, 
this that team could be uh, one heck of a game uh, against against Wisconsin. Once again, I just think because that game is at home, I'm giving way more of an edge to Ohio State than I probably would if it was at Camp Randall. Uh, but yeah, this should be an 11 and one ball club. Anything less than now would be extremely surprised because of the talent that they have. But once again, I don't think that this is going to be some far and away Ohio State is going to run with the regular season, and we're going to be looking at them like, yeah, they're going to be the bona fide, you know, national championship, you know, contender. All right, that will wrap it up for the entirety of our team previews. How many teams did we say we did, Nick? One hundred and thirty-one here. One hundred and thirty-one. It's almost time to start. All over again, 131. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> Start writing up the team previews for 2023, Nick. So, uh... well, we'll play the season first, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I guess we got a season in between there uh, to get to, but that's right. Uh, obviously, we'll be coming back at you uh, with a look at week one of the regular season. We already had the week zero uh, preview out, so check that out if you guys have not heard that yet. But uh, this uh, will be out. Uh, right before the start of the season. So we officially did get all of the team previews done before any games kicked off, which is very nice. Uh, and you guys have a chance to listen to, to this the night before um, on CFB Eve, really, uh, is when you guys can catch this first. So um, we hope you guys enjoy the team previews. Remember, you can follow us all on Twitter at Bogman Sports for myself at CFB Winning Edge for Nick, at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E for Xavier. And we will see you guys with a uh, week one preview next week. Take it easy, everybody. Thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping our show ad-free and for funding our wide range of college football analytics projects. Thanks also to Blake Austin for our theme music. To learn more about CFB Winning Edge, visit patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge or follow us on Twitter at CFB Winning Edge. Mm-hmm.